Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard the second track from the Agros, City Kids. Today's guest, once again, is Paris Mayhew. Most known for his work with the Cro-Mags. For those who have not listened to episode 30, it's impossible really for you to get a lot of the context. And just the background on Paris that we went through extensively on episode 30. So go back. Check it out. Even give the YouTube a shout. First and only video we did on YouTube was episode 30 with Paris. But we're back again. He's got a lot to say about City Kids. I'm really excited for this one. Paris is a great person to speak to. He has such a cool perspective. And even though we were doing California stuff, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to have him be a guest on the show on the week that City Kids has come into the world. So check it out. And make sure if you haven't listened to go to episode 30 so you get hip to what we talked about last time. We'll keep this quick because it's a long episode. PhillyHCShows.com Bob Wilson's got shows. Even AXBX got shows. Everybody's got shows. Joe Hardcore's got shows. Chris got a show. All under the banner of Philly Hardcore Shows. You know, so... Whether it's .com or where you go to Facebook.com slash Philly Hardcore Shows or Philly Hardcore Shows on Instagram and Twitter. Just check that shit out. Also follow Bob at FYA Fest. He's got links for his shows in um, one of those all link links. Pretty cool shit. Lots coming up. Lots more ready for 2022. It's going to be a great year. Fuck COVID. We're back. Shows are happening. Support them. Supporting hardcore is important. It keeps the wheel spinning. So thank you for doing so in these past four and a half months now since we started getting shows back around here. Also, Saturday, December 11th, holiday edition of the Keystone Hardcore Jam. We'll have more of this information. Make sure you check it out. Me, Richie, Chris Mahmood, the Trinity. We're doing another Christmas jam. It's at Reading, Pennsylvania at Club Reverb. The show stacked. Use today. E-Town Concrete. Killing Time. All Out War. Death Threat. So many of these bands are first shows back since COVID. Don't fucking miss it. Get your fucking ticket now. It's coming up soon. Boom. Be there. Hey man, last week's episode was a little dark. Sorry about that. The in-between went there. Especially when not releasing an episode. It was a little hard. I'm very thankful for those who reached out. Those who understood or at least had a perspective. And to all those who were hurting or had a lot to relate with what I talked about, it's crazy to think that you can read um, so many things about the way that people are connected, but sometimes in our own scene, we don't see it until, you know, you release a really weird, dark podcast episode and so many people come up and say, hey, thank you for talking about this. This affected me. I went through this or, you know, this has been on my mind. And again, I'll reiterate myself. Please, please, please reach out. Please. I know it's so hard and, you know, there's thousands of people like, don't tell somebody who's suicidal, reach out. No. If you're thinking about it, you reach out. Two o'clock in the morning, one in the afternoon, you fucking reach out to me. There's a lot to live for still. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for listening. This podcast, I'm really excited for. Paris Mayhew, um, his shit dropped November 1st. I'm excited to have him back on the show. We're going to be back to California next week and three or four weeks, three or four weeks after. So make sure 
to continue to support. Also, thank you to anyone who has been involved with the Patreon. Got some cool shit coming. Got some awesome shit going on the Philly Hardcore shows. So maybe some This Is Hardcore Fest 2022 news down the horizon. But for now, let's focus on our guest tonight, Paris Mayhew. On the release of City Kids uh, a couple of days ago, a lot of people really enjoyed it. This interview, the meat of it, is going to be talking about all the different aspects of the video. There's so many amazing creative ideas put into it that it's worth it. And then a lot of touching back on the old stuff. I love Paris's perspective. I love having conversations with him. He's a fantastic guy with a ton of creativity and did a lot for hardcore and you know the creation of Age of Quarrel and just being a huge first generation impact on the music and is the legacy is insane. So let's fucking go. All right, we are talking again to Paris Mayhu, who just dropped the second video. I would call it a, an opus. This is City Kids. You just heard it as the intro for this episode. He is continuing to break out new music, and we have so much to talk about with this project and other stuff. Paris, thank you for coming on the show. It's it's my pleasure. Yeah, um, I enjoyed our conversation last time, and I feel like I've come uh come with something that we can definitely talk about for quite a while with this video. So when we, when we last spoke, you were working on getting back to work because of COVID. And that was like the week that we dropped the, the, the actual episode, you had actually gone to work. So the timeline to even work on city kids, the music you had already started writing, correct? Like the, the, the music would already been done before we even talked. Correct. To a certain extent, you know, as I've mentioned the last time we spoke, you know, you collect a lot of things, a lot of puzzle pieces, and uh, I had some of the puzzle pieces, but I hadn't really assembled them into, you know, this nine-minute piece of music or, or these three pieces of music at that time. And like you said, I went to, I, I went back to work. I, I went on a TV show in Hawaii for four months, and then I was in Atlanta for three months making a movie. So the music was completely on hold for those six months. And then uh, I shot a little bit of the performance of the video right before I went away to Hawaii. Uh, so I just had uh, kind of like what you might say, you know, the, the foundation for the video. And I was able to sit with it and, and really make the connections of everything else I needed to shoot. Now... Unless I'm mistaken, this is still, even though I'd seen some posts on the internet about you potentially adding members, this is still played, all the instrumentation is completely you, written by you on the City Kids track, correct? Well, I didn't play the drums. Okay. And and also, uh, I added something new to this song, which is piano, and I did not pay, play the piano. It was performed by... Uh, Dirk Peters, a, a German jazz uh, vibraphonist whose second instrument is piano. He doesn't even consider himself a pianist, which is extraordinary to me because he's an incredibly talented pianist. I, when, when those who see this video, I actually, we, we talk about this piece in general. It's uh, running time is around nine minutes and it has, it, it has a feeling of a composition like a movement's. You know, the first three minutes is one thing, and then it shifts 
And then, as you talk about when that when the section comes with the piano, the vibe completely changes, but it eerily is tied all in. So, you know, tracking back, obviously, you know, you are one of the forebears of the metallic hardcore punk sound, but your music background is much more uh, varied and deeper than just hardcore punk, as we talked with the Rush stuff. How much influence did you take from, you know, classical compositions and just music to be able to create something that's nine minutes long like this? You know, it didn't start out with with the vision of making something nine minutes long. I, I like I said, I'm a collector of puzzle pieces, and, and and at some point I had this I had the song at about seven minutes forty seconds, and I remember saying to my wife, you know, one one of the things that we discussed last time was not restricting myself to the song length. It, the song just should be as long as it needs to be to tell the story, and I felt like I'd gotten there with seven minutes forty five seconds, but then. I, I had gotten this idea to do the the outro as a as a piano piece because I wrote one of the parts in that second movement on the piano. You know, I picked out the notes on the piano and wrote this little piece that I ended up playing heavy in the song. And I wanted to perform maybe, you know, a 20 second outro myself. And uh, that was the that was the impetus for, for getting the piano started and I have a my Derek is my piano teacher and um, you know the the transition into me adding piano to this song was just completely accidental it was it was uh, you know taking piano lessons and having Derek teaching me Beatles songs and David Bowie songs and I, I, I began to lose interest almost immediately and um, I told him, I said, you know, when I learned how to play guitar, you know, to this day, I couldn't pick up a guitar and play, you know, like a full Rush song or Led Zeppelin song. I just never had any interest in playing other people's music. So what I did was I applied myself by to guitar by writing my own music. And I wondered if we could do that with the piano, if we could just transpose some of my music onto the piano and you can explain to me what I did. And that's how it began. Um, you know, me picking up the guitar and playing the chords for City Kids to Derek and him voicing them on the piano and immediately going, oh, my God, that sounds so great. And our and our piano lessons turned into these little jam sessions. And I said, what do I have to do to get you to play on this track? And he goes, just ask me. So we worked out, you know, the, the parts um, in my piano lessons. And then I booked the studio, brought my, uh, my Nord down, and uh, we spent an entire day recording those piano parts. And then, oddly enough, we did all the piano parts that were in the song. He actually played from beginning to end on the piano, but I ended up editing just the parts that I really, really liked. And then when it came down to do the ending, you know, one of the things that we talked about when we would do the piano lessons is I would play him the chords that I wrote, and he would play it in exactly the key that I played it, and he would say, now let's listen to it in minor. And he would play the same melody in a different key, and he would show me all these different options. And I remember saying to him, well, that's just a different scene in the movie. He goes, exactly. That's exactly what they do with movie themes is they'll take a, mel a melodic motif. And then later on in the movie, they'll play that same motif in a different key. And it gives you a different sense, like maybe a sad scene that will have the same motif in minor. And uh, so he said, well, let's just make the outro a different scene in the movie. And... Uh, 
So I just kind of instructed him or showed him how to play the part, how I originally wrote it. And I actually asked him to play it exactly that way and then go off. But at the end of the song, when I originally set it up, I had that uh, kind of like pulsing submarine sound at the end. And, and Dirk just started playing that single note that the submarine sound makes and then transitioned into the, the melodic motif of the song that I, of the part that I wrote. And I just loved that so much that I told him to, to go with that. And he played maybe four or five versions in the studio, all completely improvised, you know, using the, the, the song as a, as a basis. And then after he, after we did about five takes, I said, I believe we have it. And then I edited those takes together and uh, it turned out to be just over nine minutes. But the song suddenly felt complete. Like when Dirk hits those last few notes, it feels like the ending of an album. Like the way you used to, like when you'd listen to a vinyl album and the last song goes off and you just end up sitting there in the dark for 30 seconds after the album's over, just, you know, feeling what you just listened to. That's kind of... I mean, I, I definitely didn't set out to do that, but uh, I love that it, that it has that effect at the end. Well, that's the, the, the way that City Kid hits. First of all, as a video, it just for anybody who grew up in a city, I mean, especially I think of all, all the different shots, the nighttime shots, I think of the skateboarding. It's a great background, but the music, it comes from such a different place, you know, and not to say like a different, like it doesn't fit with City, but it comes from such a different place than what people who are like, oh, the guy from Cro-Mags, oh, he's got this thing. And it goes so much deeper. And I was wondering if, as you were looking at what the response from Chaos Magic was, obviously, I mean, the, this, the, that, that same bass line with the like, almost like percussive kind of way that you play the bass in that Chaos Magic is back again in City Kids. But there's a lot more going on with, um, there's a lot more going on now. And I wonder if the relationship to Chromags and Chaos Magic, you want to spread a little bit further in City Kids or wasn't so cognitive, like, I've got to change up. Like, where was the thought process with the second song? I definitely feel like Chaos Magic um, gave me license to do this song. Because as we discussed in our first conversation, I, I think the most gratifying thing that happened after Chaos Magic had been out for a few months was that almost nobody mentioned how long it was, you know, clocking in at almost six minutes, 40 seconds. And the fact that really nobody mentioned that song length, I felt like I had a little bit of license to again, make the song as long as it needed to be. And then the next thing you know, it was nine minutes long. I certainly don't think I would have done that as a first track to release, but I felt completely comfortable doing it uh, the second time. Um, as far as the bass, also, I think, you know, I, I get, you know, I, I started out as a bass player and then was kind of in a game of musical chairs in the Chromags ended up being the guitarist. And I found that a lifelong fulfilling instrument to be my primary instrument. But I guess I didn't realize what a frustrated bass player I was all these years because I wrote so many, so many Chromag songs, World Peace, which is a very bass centric song on the bass and uh, wasn't uh, what, and didn't perform it myself. Um, so when I, when I was approaching city kids, I really tried to put on my bass player hat and, 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 
and and I wanted it to be you know like an answer back like the guitar would would ha say what it had to say and then the bass would say what it would have to say and then the the piano would come in and take the lead for you know a chorus or something it, 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 I, I wanted it to feel like there was movement and part of having that movement was making the bass a kind of a solo instrument in, on this track in the first half and and also playing it in that pounding percussive way that I play with a pick but then when I get to the second half, what the second half, the second movement, which I call Ghosts of New York, um, I completely changed up my bass technique and played it with my fingers, um, which is something I learned from, you know, listening to and loving Rush. I, I, I definitely, I certainly wouldn't have written that part if Getty Lee hadn't recorded the Permanent Waves album and I hadn't discovered this, uh, this, this three finger bass technique that he used. He used it before that, but there was a specific song, Free Will, on, on Rush Permanent Waves, uh, where there's a solo breakdown. He plays that. And then at one point he goes, where he plays this three-finger bass. Break. And that, that little thing fascinated me so much for so long. It was very much like the docking chord that stayed in my mind all those years and ended up in uh, Chaos Magic. But that three-finger little gallop he did, is you know part of that second part of uh, of uh, Ghosts of New York where I go down 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 down. It's exactly the same bass technique, just applied to a different uh, spot melodically in my riff. Um, so yeah, I think I think I, I felt like I finally had a chance to flex my bass muscles on this song. Not that it isn't a very guitar-centric song. It's just. You know, when we were mixing it, it was one of those things where I thought the guitar was, was going to be this dominant, because I'm playing all kinds of guitar harmonies, and it's very lush. And a lot of that is kind of lost, because when we were mixing it, I was mixing it with this guy, Vinny Vincin from uh, Electric Plant Studios. And uh, at some point when we were getting the bass sound, we were just like, this is like the most tremendous Godzilla Balls bass sound. It's he goes, we both agreed that we should lead, we should follow the sounds that were, we shouldn't go over the preconceived um, notion and think it's gotta be a guitar heavy mix. We should go w with what, um, lead with our strongest uh, attributes. And the bass was definitely the strongest. So the, the song is certainly very, very bass heavy in the mix. And that was something that was decided, you know, literally the last day when we were mixing. Wow, that's crazy because I, I, when I think of Chromags, and I mean, World Peace is a great example. There's so many great examples um, of the style of that progressive bass sound back then. And I mean, I think of only a handful of other like hardcore punk bands at the time who really had like a, ba like a really distinct bass sound. Black Flag's one of them. There's a handful of them that were, that were let led, like led songs whether they were the fast songs by Black Flag or even when they got to the slower stuff, especially in them slower records, that, that bass ran the entire thing. So I wonder how much those uh, those influences came in along with the Getty Lee. I, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned Chuck Dukowski because I actually mentioned him in our, in our press release for the song because, you know, I saw Black Flag when Damage first came out and I don't think I remember being so struck by the bass player of a band than I was that day. I mean, 
and even back then, I, 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 I kind of coined this phrase for myself, you know, and amongst my friends that, uh, that Chuck was the, the Joe Frazier of bass players. He was just like a heavyweight, like hardest hitting guy who broke Muhammad Ali's jaw bass player. And I absolutely 100% was, was trying to draw from that night when I saw Black Flag and Chuck Dukowski and what he does to the bass is like nobody else. And I, I just, I just used that as an influence and did my best to try to give the feeling that he gave me that night and the feeling he gives me every time I listen to Damage. What an extraordinary sound that guy has and, and ability. Yeah, well, um, in an interview on a podcast called 185 Miles South, Kira, who would take Chuck's place, really went in deep on as a player, because obviously she's a, been a bass player a really long time, on just how hard it was to play, like in the physical, the physical pain of having to play that way. So when mm. you said the breaking of the jaw, like, you know, especially them, especially the black flag stuff as it starts getting slower and meaner. Like, yeah, you're not going in there and lightly stroking that. That's that's a hard that's a hard sound, and you manage to put it together. With I mean, there's like so many tones of melodies and so many things going on that it, it has so many layers deeper than your average hardcore song written somewhere between 1980 and 85, and it shows the depth of your musicianship and where your songwriting is going, and um. Did you have any apprehension, or were you worried you were getting too, you were getting too out and out beyond what your comfort zone was, or were you just happy to be outside the comfort zone? You know, I, I don't really know if I have a comfort zone, and and, and again, I didn't make any of these uh, decisions in advance. It's kind of, you know, I, I always use the the uh, example, you know, for any artistry, you know, that I learned this when I was in art school. I think I might have even mentioned it to you before, but like, you know, you sit down with a pen, pen with a pencil and a piece of paper, and you and you say to yourself, "I'm going to draw the best horse I can." And you sit down and you start trying to draw a horse, and about 45 minutes later, you've drawn like an amazing duck. And then everybody who sees this drawing goes, "Man, that's the best duck I've ever seen. You really know how to draw a duck." And then I said, "Yeah, but I was trying to draw a horse." Oh, so, duck. And I think that that is the way I, I approach this song. I just kind of immerse myself in it, not, you know, looking just at what I was doing and um, wasn't really making these decisions like in terms of the long view. I was doing it in increments. I was literally editing the song in, in my film editing program, Final Cut Pro. I, I like laid in the main part of City Kids. I laid in another song I had called Ghosts of New York, which has all other sections and I just chopped it and took the ending and, and stuck it on there. And then when I was doing the piano lessons with Dirk, uh, you know, I was just recording him with my iPhone and then I cut those little pieces that he recorded that I liked and I added them to the song in Final Cut Pro, you know, not even a music program, just a video editing program. And it all sounded so good and so natural and it, and it really built slowly. Like the same way you would if you were just trying to draw something and sketch it out. And then at some point I had, I was playing the song back with all the keyboards on it. And I thought to myself, now maybe I'll even just put it out like this with the iPhone video sounds because they sound so great. Uh, you know, because I kept thinking, I guess the art of it is just that it, it works. If it works, it doesn't matter that I didn't record it in a recording studio. It, 
Um, but then, of course, I, I ended up taking Derek into the studio and doing it properly. But uh, literally, the song grew from there. And, and, you know, and, and I actually initially, at the end of the song, had the little piano solo that I had originally wrote and recorded just stuck in there. And uh, I was kind of happy with that. And I thought that was the way it was going to go um, until I, hear, I heard Derek play it. And he just took it to such a different, uh, beautiful, and uh, uh, dynamic level. Like, you know, it, it just was the closing, the perfect closing. And I couldn't imagine it being any other way now. I'm going to try to enlist him on more tracks. But, you know, it's, it's not like piano is going to fit with every song that I write. It just, this was a very natural song for it. It had a lot of space for it. But my next song, uh, which is now titled uh, Skateboard Fight, uh, I don't really know. I'm going to try and I'm going to bring him in. Next time I have a lesson with him, I'm going to play him the song and see where, where it goes. But it's just like everybody asking me if I'm going to have a singer. You know, if anybody had asked me a year ago if I was going to have a piano player, I probably would have said no. Um, but it just happened completely naturally. And, and I think, you know, when you listen to the song four or five times and you become acclimated to, to all the characteristics of it to tell the story from beginning to end, you probably, like me, would, wouldn't be able to imagine it without the piano. No, actually, thinking of what you just said, where you, you brought up the singer thing, and it looks like you're not approaching aggros in the sense where a traditional band would drop one track as a teaser, maybe then outfit a full lineup and book tours. You sounds like right now you're really comfortable releasing songs as they come together and letting the work and the art kind of like create itself as opposed to saying, all right, we have a stringent timeline. Okay, we got to make sure it has the verse chorus and the big breakdown. Like you're not keeping to any of the molds that are so typical with any kind of heavy music or aggressive music. And it's got to be, there has to be some influence from just you seeing creations come out with your, you know, regular day job, like films and stuff like it, you don't have to get stuck in one path. And do you, do you think that because you're not just looking at it from a hardcore musician or a thrash musician, you're looking at it from just trying to create that you have so much more open license and you're not trying to just get yourself locked into what everybody else is right now. Um, Uh, you know, I don't have that much of a plan. I, I, I definitely have the luxury of not having to do that. I mean, I, I certainly try to formulate it. Me and my wife sit and discuss uh, ways to move forward, like what song would have been next. I actually had chosen a different song to be next, but we, we, we kind of discussed it. And uh, I, went with, I went with this song because I was really just – I had immersed myself in it and this idea of just locking myself in this, in this room, this is my office and, and making the song the way it was. I, I have other songs that are complete, like complete recordings, but I attack, I, uh, I uh, applied myself to this one, which was not, I guess, because I just really wanted to do something. Uh, you know, I didn't want to just take something that was already finished. Like I, you know, I told you before that I, I had spent a lot of time trying to assemble a band and recording demos. So I have a lot of that stuff already in the can uh, to a certain extent, but the creative 
process is, you know, probably the most important thing to me. I, I'll, I'll certainly love performing this stuff live at some point, but it's the assembly, the, the collecting of the puzzle pieces, the execution, the practice, you know, the, the practice to just to play the bass on the song was, was pretty extensive and, you know, excruciating. And when I finished recording the tracks, you know, I had three open blisters on this hand and my, my left hand was <laughs> as raw as can be and, and I enjoyed every second of it. But I literally didn't touch any instruments for two weeks after the recording. Um, you know, I just, and when I was applying the keyboard stuff, you know, I was drawing from King Diamond and Rush and Yes and all the bands that I loved that had piano and I don't, I don't really know if I was trying to uh, defy my genre. Uh, I was just doing what sounded and felt right at the time. And I'm just going to keep doing that, you know. Now, I know um, there was talks about potentially building a lineup and, and playing live. But seeing City Kids, when you sent that to me, just blew me away. Because, again, like, there's so much to it. And just like Chaos Magic, you can't – you're not going to get this – in one listen, you're not going to grasp the scope of it. You know, um, we had a guy who came on the podcast every you did Darren Walters and we were moving a friend and I played him chaos magic in the car. And he was like, Holy shit. You know, and like, and, and it takes a couple times to listen to it, to really grasp like that. This isn't just about, Oh, Paris has this new thing and he's trying to do this. I don't even know if and I love that you said, you don't, you're not trying to do anything. Like you're letting it just be free and it comes off. And I wonder if as you get more free, you know, with different aspects of piano and whatever comes down the line, if there's ever a thought, how does this work in a live setting? And you're not really taking that much time to put that into perspective. I don't know. I've been talking to, you know, people about it. You know, my public, my PR person, uh, Metal Maria reached out to, you know, she put out an email and like a thousand people must have responded. I guess I let the cat out of the bag because she didn't tell anybody who it was for. And I, I, I got hundreds of videos and stuff. And there was one kid in there playing drums uh, who I'm definitely going to call. And, you know, hopefully I'll be able to enlist Dirk, uh, Dirk, uh, you know, to an extent. He's got his entire whole music. He's about to release an album himself. And, uh, and then I was talking to another friend of mine about, you know, who would I find to play bass? Who would I find who could play these bass parts? And, uh, you know, he mentioned the guy from Rancid. And I thought to myself, wow, that might be the only person I can think of off the top of my head who would be capable of it, who, uh, who uses the techniques of using a pick in the fingers uh, with such expertise. You know, I, I might even have to find myself uh, – you know, playing musical chairs and maybe I'll play bass for a while and depending on musician's availability. I mean, that's exactly how I ended up on the guitar in Chromags is I was originally the bass player and Harley played drums. And, uh, you know, when musicians became available, we just kind of like literally played musical chairs and moved around. And uh, we ended up finding a drummer and that's when and Harley, you know, couldn't play guitar. So... I was like, okay, I guess I'll play guitar, and and, and we did that. So I, I'm I'm kind of comfortable with the, uh, with playing musical chairs myself. 
There's a I definitely intend to assemble this band. I'm definitely going to be performing these songs sooner than later. I do like the idea of just like sitting in my office and creating stuff, but uh, that's not going to be the end of it. There's a, a bunch of different groups, I would say more in the digital format, but they play different kind of instruments. One of them's Winter Garden from Sweden that comes to mind where the primary musicians besides the drummer switch off and they play different instruments. Actually, sometimes even in the middle of a piece, they play different instruments in a piece. Hmm. It's not something you'd see so much in rock or metal, but there are musicians that are able to kind of flow. And I could see that being something like, all right, this is the, this is the track where Paris gets on the bass. You know, this is, and especially going back to the, the two videos, you know, obviously you're, you got, you're the instrumentation, you're the instrument guys on both of these. And I could see it happening. And I think, um, it might be interesting to see if you get someone versatile enough that you could swap things with live. I would love that. Um, you know, it's like, it's like Charlie Daniels, you know, playing guitar for half the song and then grabbing the fiddle and playing fiddle parts and then putting it down. And, you know, I used to see that, you see that kind of thing in country music quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, a great example is uh, the devil went down to Georgia and that kind of stuff. But I mean, that's the thing. I think as you, as you break the molds of what's expected from Paris Mayhew and just write and create, I think that you are going to have people be more interested because 40 years later, yeah, it was very awesome to hear Chaos Magic. And City Kids still falls right in the family tree of stuff that you wrote back then. But there's so much more depth to it. There's so much more uh, thought process in it. And so you would be selling yourself short and selling your listeners short. You know, like the people that followed, you know, you through all the different releases you were a part of, if you just stick with the, the basic formula. Um, yeah. I wonder if, I wonder if with the City Kids release, if you're going to have people even beyond it, because especially with the added piano, it adds it adds a different mood to it too. You know, like the video has a just the same level, and I, I can't wait to start talking about like just the so we did last time with the video and how you shot it, but the video is impeccable, but it, the song is moving. And if you're sitting there not doing 10 things, the first time you said to me, I watched it, I was in my car and then I put it on at my TV. I cast it on my TV and I had nothing else going on. I watched it. I'm like, all right, this is fucking sick. Like if this was something that if we were a kid sit here back when headbangers ball was thing, I'd be captivated. Like, what the fuck is this? So I think that the piece has, a lot of room to grow. And I think that there's more than just a, Oh, it's the guy from this band doing something weird. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And it shows a level of growth and just also pressing an idea further than what a typical three minute hardcore song would. I'm glad to hear it. You know, like I, like I said, when we spoke about chaos magic, I feel like it, a lot of the, a, a lot of the, my, uh, the response to it is, is surprising, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it has that effect. You know, I, you never know, especially when you're just letting yourself go outside uh, the lines, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, it's being well received. It seems I haven't, I've been, it, the, the response is, is, is very similar. I almost feel like I'm having a deja vu. I can't believe I waited so long. You know, I was obviously forced to wait this long because of my work, but uh, 
there definitely won't be the gap uh, between this song and the next one. I won't allow that to happen. I'm just enjoying it too much. When you went into doing City Kids, was your thought process to keep that background of the city in the abode? Obviously, you said you had a, another track, Ghost in New York. Is there a general theme with the first set of releases or this release that all this aggro's music is going to be compiled in with New York being in the background now that you have uh, two compositions? Like, what is your thought process that would continue the so City Kids looks like not a part two, but an extension of what Chaos Magic was? Well, visually, it is a, a complete extension. My, my, my thought was I almost took the last shot from Chaos Magic and put it at the beginning of this one. So it would feel like it was the same night, like one continuous night. That was like that was basically my uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a concept, but it, it was the way I wanted the, the video to feel. I just wanted it to feel like it was both songs were one continuous night. And um, although I did kind of shoot test things to kind of get a feel of it, the very first thing I shot for this video were the uh, the bicycle shot where the camera's attached to the bike and I'm pedaling really fast through the city and the, the, the opening shot of the skateboard wheels in the water. And as soon as I saw those two shots with the like red and blue lights, it was a cop car behind the bike, uh, I immediately knew that I wanted that to be the colors of the video. And that's and subsequently when I shot the performance, on one, uh, in one position I'm wearing this blue Ace Freely shirt, which, which took care of the blue. And then I had my red guitar in the middle and that took care of that. And then there was this swash of yellow graffiti across the bottom one. And that fulfilled the primary color palette. And that's basically the look of the whole video. And if you watch it, you really see those colors awash all throughout it, you know, um, with the backdrop of the sodium vapor lights of, uh, of New York. I actually chose that skateboard park because it actually has um, although the, the, the park has probably 10 lights, those two at the very front of the, are still uh, sodium vapor. All the rest were made uh, LED. So I was able to shoot in that one direction at night and get that same look that I got in Chaos Magic. And again, it's, you know, it's, it's basically a memory. It's my memory. It's, and it's not a memory of a, of a specific event or, or of something that happened. It's, it's the way my memories look. It's the way my memories of New York, of my childhood look. And I just wanted the music to have that backdrop because I feel like it's a integral part of why my music is the way it is because I'm a native New Yorker. I was born and raised here and I was educated here. And I, everything I know, I know from here. And uh, I, I feel like that imprint it, it is important to have on the music. Now, it's important to me. I think it also adds a lot to the, I mean, you could probably do a release, not that this is a commercial or capitalist thought process as you go on, but like you could probably drop a, a DVD and I would imagine they would sync up, like you said. And um, it just reminds me of uh, whether it was like Quadrophenia or like those like the old rock videos where the songs and these awesome, I mean, for me, 
I was blown away as a kid by Pink Floyd The Wall. That was like the end all be all of like putting music in videos and it, it, it for me the I I'm you know you know, think about probably almost thirty five years later, I know every single song that was on that VHS because of how many times I watched it for the visuals. The visuals yeah. will tie you so much to a song like, you know, any kind of really great rock video will do that. And I feel as if the city kids adds a layer. Like there's so it's a lot of it's the colors and like the speed. And like you said, like the, but I'm actually shocked you said about the bike trying to figure out how you shot that, you know? Um, but it's so much like what you were seeing, like, you know, like it's a simple thing. Um, whether New York, Philly, if you're going down the street, you're seeing skateboarders, you're seeing people on bikes. It's a common thing, so common that you wouldn't think to put in a video, but it actually becomes like almost like a focal point or a main ingredient to the shot, you know? Yeah, I mean, city kids, you know, people all over the country, they get driver's licenses when they're 16. You know, I didn't get my driver's license until I was 35, and I thought I would never get one. And the way we navigate the streets are on bikes and skateboards. And that's probably why we all end up riding skateboards into our 30s and 40s and 50s or whatever, because, uh, you know, that's just a natural part of how we navigate the city. And as a young kid, you know, I learned every street and every block because I skateboarded up and down them. You know, I was I was able to go fast and and not have to worry about how much ground I was covering. I would go out in the middle of the night on my skateboard after the honeymooners went off and uh uh, you know, and that's how I discovered hardcore music. I skateboarded down to the Lower East Side, and I and I saw a bunch of kids standing in front of A7, and you know, I was like, "What's going on here?" And that was, you know, I would never have discovered that if I didn't have if I wasn't a skateboarder. And you know, that's why I inclu- included the skateboarding part into the video because it's definitely part about being a city kid. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I skateboarded my whole life, and in that to a certain extent, I felt like when I was at the skateboard park, I was the ghost. I was the one haunting, you know, these new city kids, you know, this whole other generation of kids skateboarding at the park. And there I was on my board too, you know, feeling like, feeling completely akin to them because, you know, even though 30 years or whatever has passed, I feel like I would have been here, you know, 30 years ago if if that park had existed. But, you know, going back to the, the visual element of it, you know, I, I, you know, even things that I wasn't really that interested in, like when Michael Jackson was making these, uh, you know, not that I don't love Michael Jackson, I do, uh, but uh, when he was making these long, elaborate videos that didn't stop when the song stopped, or the song might stop in the middle and there would be like a three minute, you know, narrative sequence, like, like in Smooth Criminal where the song just stops and he just starts snapping his finger and there's this whole dance thing that happens in this whole narrative with the, the girl with the knife and the, you know and then all of a sudden it goes back to the song you know like that kind of stuff is fantastic people used to sit up waiting for on mtv to, to see that kind of thing or the zz top you know you know sharp dressed man and legs like that whole theme with the cars and the keys and the girls you know they wanted to see the next video to see what happened you know you gave them something else you know you gave them a reason to sit down and listen to it and and uh, contributed to their imagination uh, and, and how they enjoyed the song, and and I have I I'm fortunate enough to have that uh, talent, skill, or, or whatever it is to to make films, and so I'm just gonna keep doing it because I, I 
I can't help it anyway. You know, I love doing it. It's, it's compulsive. And my wife was like, what are you doing at 1130 at night? I go, I'm going to go out and shoot something. And I'd go out and shoot the bike stuff, or I'd go out and shoot the skateboard stuff, or I'd shoot the, you know, the strings on my guitar. You know, like I went out, you know, in the middle of the night at like midnight and shot all those shots of the pickups, the pickup, pickups on my guitar, you know, with this very close up lens. But I shot it at the skateboard park because I wanted the light to be the same. And it wasn't until like I, you know, got this lens like right up on my pickups that I saw that, that there was like decades of crusted, dried blood. I'm so glad you, I'm so glad you said that because when that shot comes in, I'm like, you know, somebody else would have been crazy anal and probably would have like alcoholed it up. But I think it adds, it adds wear and tear. It adds, I mean, just thinking about that close shot, I know you mentioned the pedal bike and like how you try to get the camera on there. But, um, you know, the first shot is that skateboard with the lights, you know, like, and, and I imagine, did you, did you know that you were going to shoot it with the lighted wheels? I mean, like these little touches. I mean, for me, when I saw the, the second time I watched it, I saw it on my TV, I was listening to that bass sound and I was wondering if you were trying to show people with the video that it's not just a playing, it's that percussive element. Cause you know, exactly what a pickup does is it picks up the sound, but if you're just watching someone, it's not just strumming. You're actually, you know, like it's a specific bass style, you know, like we're hitting it with the drum, yeah. And 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 that pickup is that, so. Was that like a focus? Like, were you were you visually trying to show people like, hey, look, it, I'm not just playing it like this, or was it just like randomly as you were shooting different angles of the bass that it picked that element up? Um, I, I definitely, I, I wasn't trying to do that. I, I did show close-ups of my my right hand um, for that because, you know, I, I like to show what I would look at. You know, if I was observing a musician, I would, I just wanted to show what, where my eyes would go. That's also why I have that close-up of the eye. It's kind of my way of saying, like, this is what I see. You know, throughout the, the, the video, there's three close-ups, macro close-ups of just my eyeball. And that's just a way of saying, this is what I see. And uh, when you get to, you know, and, and it's what I see, you know, from from the, the perspective of the shots. You know, one of the things about being a city kid, which you probably know, too, is that we always look up. You know, we're always looking up at everything. Everything from our perspective is up. That's why all those shots that I have of the buildings with the projections on the side of the building are like up through fences, because that's how that's how city kids, city people see the world. We look up at buildings we'll never be in. We look up at houses we'll never that we'll never own. <laughs> you know, I hate to say that. I spent my life walking by all these beautiful homes in Manhattan, and, and I always thought to myself, "Man, I wonder who lives there." Like, I can't even imagine what it's what it'd be like to live there. So I had this sense that you know we're always looking up at something we won't have. And that's the city view, and I I went out of my way to do that uh, with all these shots of the city. But when he, but I also felt like, you know, when you're, when you're looking at something in a music video, you usually see these kind of portraits, you know, waist up, maybe a close up, head to toe, but you don't really get that microcosm feel where you're like, where you're looking at the rust on a pickup or the coil on a pickup is, you know, fills the entire frame and you see the rust and the dried blood. And, and, and I also saw like, all this, like what I what I thought looked like pixie dust. I was like, "What? It looks like candy dust or something." 
And I realized it was just years and years of using different colored picks and the pick dust. Oh, yeah. Well, literally my, my pickup. And, I, and when I saw that, I was like, I, lo- I love this. I, this is what needs to be seen. People are always asking me questions about my guitar and wanting to take a look at it. So I wanted to give them a view even, even closer. So I showed the pickups. I even shot the knobs and stuff, but the knobs weren't that interesting to put in a music video. But I definitely love showing the, the dried blood and the pick dust. There's elements where you have um, a lot of stuff is still from the ground up. Like you see your shoes, which is something that was an element from Chaos Magic. There's still elements. Obviously, you're repeating the pattern of you're the, you're the player in, in, in each instrument uh, in both videos. The shoes are new, but this time now you have the shinier shoes and I wonder if you just wanted to keep some motifs while expanding on it from video to video. Absolutely. You, you know, again, it's like what I would look at. You know, the, the people have joked about the attention I played to the sneakers, you know, like calling it a, a commercial and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if you grew up in a city and you grew up poor, you realize that there were certain things that you coveted and there were th- certain things that you saved up for and you valued. And one of those things that was attainable for poor city kids was to have nice sneakers. And that was just a part of our culture. You know, in, it, it was something I was going to put in the video, but I just never had the time was when I was in high school, all the kids used to like have toothbrushes in their pockets because we all had suede sneakers. It was the era of like Pumas. And everybody would have a toothbrush in their pocket and they would like clean their sneakers with the toothbrush. And I wanted to put that in the video, just not not because it's something that I do now, but it's something that I had done. And it shows this reverence for what was attainable when you're poor. You know, and these little things are important. And it's and it's just and it's just part of the life and part of the culture. And I saw that at the skateboard park, you know, all these kids were they were just as involved in their sneakers as I was. And but you know, now as a, a man of means. I can have as many nice sneakers as I want. So I bought some cool, nice sneakers and I put them in the video because it's definitely part of being a city kid. And it's definitely, definitely without a doubt part of being a New Yorker. And, and New Yorkers understand it. And I, I don't know if it's the same in Philly, but nobody's asking me about the sneakers in New York. They're, they all totally understand. But I just thought I'd mention that. No, no, I, I like it. In fact, I mean, I'm looking at in my entire life, I have the most amount of sneakers I have right now, and I'm not a sneaker person. I have five pairs, but pre-COVID, I bought a pair of Reebok, and I was like, yo, I need a new, new, new pair. I've worn them three times because of COVID, but I specifically, like, those are my clean sneakers. <laughs> like, you know, it's the same thing because, you know, um, it's what you grow up in. Like, I remember, you know, getting your sneakers stepped on in high school meant a fight. And in Philly, right. when, in, in Philly, you know, uh, especially the corners that we grew up in, it was a big deal when you got done with your sneakers to throw them up on the line. You know, like it was a, it was one of the fun, it was like the most fun thing. Like, oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta get a new pair of trucks. I'm going to chuck these up there. You know, it was like, and I would get so bummed when the electric guy would come and cut them down. Like it was a big part of growing up with sneakers, you know? Yeah. You mentioning that fighting over stepping on your sneakers. That's, that makes, you know, that is absolutely correct because again, this was something that was attainable you, you, and if you attained it and you had it and it was a small thing but when you're a kid it's a big deal and if somebody would step on them that that definitely that, that met 
there'd be some fist flying, no doubt. And you know, for me as a, as a as a young kid living in New York, the only thing of value that I owned was my guitar. You know, my red guitar, my BC Rich that I have that I got when I was like fifteen or sixteen. You know, and, and that to me was like unbelievable that I even had it. Now. You know? I know last episode and the closing, you're like, you're one of the few people who didn't ask me about my BC Rich. And I felt bad because I'm like, fuck, we hit so many things. And I'm like, God, there's somebody slipped by. You got this when you were 15 years old. I imagine it, it, it's had to have seen some, not modifications, but through the years, you've had to send it through and get it reworked or, you know, make sure the, the, the what, I always forget the term. It's um, the people that actually do the work to like, you know, through constant touring and traveling, there's tension in the necks. Like you've had over the years to make, to keep that running. What, how, how, how have you done that? I know you said your father's quote still fucks me up. Like if you get it, if you get a good guitar, it'll last you forever. You know, like something like that. Was that the reason why you kept this guitar or is there sentiment in getting the guitar that you were like, I'm never going to get rid of this guitar. Well, it's a combination of all things, you know, musical instruments to a large extent are the one thing that for a long time escaped the whole Steve Jobs stigma that everything is made to fail. You know, he, he created this planned obsolescence thing, but even today people start to say, you know, because they, in the past couple of years, they've definitely been a run of consumer instruments but when i got my guitar and for most of my life musical instruments are something that's made for professional musicians to use they're tools and they should last a lifetime there's no reason they should ever fail you know I, you know i have this martin acoustic 1958 guitar that i got from my father and it's you know it plays perfectly and it will play perfectly for the next person who plays it 50 years from now Guitars are for life, and um, I, I didn't, I didn't take care of it because of that. I took care of it because, you know, as a kid, you know, my, if, if we ever saw like Pete Townsend on TV smashing a guitar, my father would, you know, stop and and say, you know, this is, you know, this is show business. This is not, you know, don't look at this guy thinking he's a hero smashing his guitar. You know, he, this is show business. He's, you know, putting on a show and making millions of dollars. Don't let this be some kind of lesson to how you should treat instruments. You, you should treat your instrument with respect and it'll pay off in time. And, you know, like I, I think I mentioned it last time, you know, my, my guitar has been a magic carpet for me. And it's taken me around the world. It's afforded me the ability to, to make things that I'm proud of. And, you know, I just love it. I would never get rid of it. But the thing is... You know, you mentioned all the touring and all the years. That really wasn't the case with the Chromatics. We, you know, if you actually did the math and added up all the concerts we played in our in our entire career, you know, that I was a part of, um, it wouldn't even last. It wouldn't even add up to a year. You know, we we put out Aiden Coral and probably toured for three months and broke up. And then we put out Best Wishes and toured for about three months and broke up. And then we put out Revenge and we toured for about three or four months and broke up, you know. And if you add all the little one-off gigs in between and did the math, it probably doesn't last a year. So my guitar really didn't take 
the kind of abuse that, you know, a band like Biohazard or Sepultura or, you know, Metallica or any of these bands that toured for, for years at a time, Machine Head, any, you know, any of these agnostic front, you know, my guitar just didn't get that kind of wear and tear. But on the Revenge tour, it did fail. Uh, there was a problem with the electronics and I, when the tour was over, I left the band and I put my guitar in storage. It must've been in storage for nine years, not working. And then, uh, a friend of mine, Pete Asarisi, who actually plays drums on City Kids, talked me into taking the guitar out and, and playing with him. And, uh, so I took it to the shop. I, I, I hunted down the actual creator of the BC Rich Bitch. Wow. The guy who designed it. And I sought him out. I explained to him, you know, the, the relevance of the instrument and all that stuff. And I sent it to him. And he had the guitar for a year. And he didn't, he wasn't able to, to correct the problem. He just wanted to replace all the electronics. So he did. But he, but I insisted that he give me the old electronics back. And then I, I hated the way the guitar sounded. And after about two years, I called up my old guitar tech and I gave him the old electronics and the guitar and he, he reassembled it. And the guitar worked. There was nothing wrong with it except for one of the pickups uh, needed to be rewired. He said, I can't believe your BC Rich guy didn't know that. You know, he, he obviously didn't even check it. He just talked you into replacing the electronics, gutted the thing, and that was the end of that. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, yeah, no. He goes, well, just rewire this pickup, and I'll give it back to you. It's all original. And, and you know, and it's what I use to record City Kids. So it's back in working order. I actually had to look it up because it was making me so mad. A luthier. I remember like the Craig from Sil Craig Silverman, who was in um, who's was in Agnostic Front now, played in Slapshot. He was constantly talking about needing to go back and get things set up. I remember him writing out on the internet and being like, "Oh yeah, that's the word luthier." Well, so, you, know, you do have to get a guitar set up twice a year if you live in a city like New York, where you have extreme cold and extreme hot. You know, as the weather starts to warm up. The, the, the wood, you know, transforms and bends and, and is no longer in, intonated, as they call it. So you take it to a luthier, and then they, they make adjustments on the neck, and they in, what they call intonate it, and you have it intonated for the summer. And then when fall, you know, when, when the, the end of summer, you know, when fall takes over and it turns into winter, as it's transitioning into winter, you should wait until it gets a little cold, and then you should drop off your guitar again and have it set up for winter. I mean, I've never actually heard anybody describe it that way, but that is just the, the way it has to be done. So essentially, that guitar has just got you through everything. Absolutely. Um, does the same, do you have the same kind of love for the bass? Do you have like a bass or like a couple that you like, or is that more or less, ah, it's not as important? Well, I, you know, I, I'm one of these people, I, I never looked for instruments. Literally, in, until five years ago, I only owned two guitars. Martin, the, the Martin, the acoustic guitar, and the BC Rich. All the time I was in, in the Chromags, I only had that one guitar. If I broke a string, I would replay, I would change the string on stage. So, <laughs> but in the past five years, a bunch of guitars have come to me. Uh, I know that's a, a, a strange thing to say, but uh, the first one was the GNL Rampage that I played on Chaos Magic, the white guitar. Yeah. Um, that one came to me from this guy, Albi Romano, who, who was a friend of mine. Uh, and he's a guitar collector. 
And uh, one day I was over at his house and he has, you know, he has a million guitars, like super, he has one guitar that's worth $750,000. It's crazy. And uh, so I'm over there and I see this white guitar and he puts it in my lap. He's like, you like this guitar? I'm selling it to Jerry Cantrell. And I was like, uh, I was like, I played it. It looked like a Strat. It was a GNL Rampage. GNL is the company that Leo Fender founded after he left, after he sold out Fender. And I was playing the guitar. I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. And he goes, do you know Jerry Cantrell? And I go, yeah. <laughs> and I told him this, I told him the story about how, you know, Lane was a big Chromex fan. So I became friends with Lane and, and friendly with Jerry and Mike Starr. And, uh, and I said, but yeah, but, but, but Jerry doesn't talk to me anymore. He goes, what do you mean? And I told him the story about how this girl I knew in New York, who was like a club promoter, called me up and she was like, hey, come over to my house. You know, we'll go, we'll go out to dinner tonight before we go out to the club because she was like this club girl that I would usually meet at like one o'clock in the morning. And, uh, but she called me to meet her at like six and we'd have dinner and whatever before the clubs, which was unusual. So I go over to her apartment and when I walk in the door, Jerry Cantrell comes out of the bathroom in a towel. Like he just got out of the shower, hair all wet. And he's just like looking at me and his chest was like this. <laughs> what are you doing here? And I was like, uh, we're going to go out to dinner. I was like, I was like, I don't want to say her name. I was like, I was like, you didn't tell him I'm coming. And she, oh, I thought you guys knew each other. It would be cool. I was like, yeah, we know each other. And, but he net, his chest never went down and the hairs on the back of his neck never changed. And I was like, and we went out to dinner and he sat with his back to me and we went out to the club and he sat with his back to me. And when the night was over, and every time I saw him subsequently to that, he was just gave me the cold shoulder all because of this girl <laughs> that I had nothing to do with. And, uh, and I'm telling the story to this, to Albie. And, and as I'm telling the story, he's getting mad. Like he's getting really mad. Albie doesn't like it when I, I talk about him in interviews because I actually mentioned him in a podcast about a year and a half ago and I never heard from him again. But he's, he's an extraordinary character. He's an extraordinary guitar player. And, and he knows he knows his shit when it comes to guitars. But he, anyway, so I'm telling this story about the girl and Jerry Cantrell. And he goes, that motherfucker, who the fuck does he think he is? Doesn't he know who you are? <laughs> I said, well, Albie, I know he headlined Rock and Rio and played in front of a million people. So I'm pretty sure he knows who he is. But I don't necessarily know if he knows who I am or if that's relevant to him. He goes, yes, but it's just a matter of respect. He, you know, who does he think he is? And I go, I don't know. And he goes, well, you know what I'm going to do? I said, what? He goes, I'm going to give you this guitar as a gift. He goes, I was going to sell it to Jerry for $5,000, but I'm going to give it to you. And I said, um, well, that's way too generous. I don't think you should do that. He goes, no. He goes, but you got to promise me one thing. I go, what's that? He goes, you got to make sure that Jerry knows you have it. <laughs> and I said, well, because at this time I wasn't playing music music actively. I said to him, well, I don't know how I'm going to make that happen, that I'll, that I'll let Jerry Cantrell know that I have this guitar that he wanted. But uh, if I have to say that to get the guitar, I'll say it. So he gave me the guitar. And after about three months or so, I tried to give it back to him. I, was, I said, you know, this is too extravagant a gift to give me if I'm not in love with it. And I, and I wasn't in love with it first because I was so used to my BC Rich. But, um, but, my, but my BC Rich was in the shop, like I told you, because of the electronics. So I kept the GNL and I played it for like another year and I decided to keep it. 
So that's how I got that guitar. It was a gift from this this, this guitar collector. And then the bass that I have, it was an equally as strange thing. I went over to Mary Campbell's house. Uh, she used to run Electric Lady Studios, and she's still a friend of mine. And I drive up to her house from time to time and just hang out. And uh, I was in her house, and, and there was this bass case leaning up against the wall. And I said, uh, what's that? And she goes, oh, it's a... It's a 1980, it's a 1979 Fender Precision I bought for Electric Lady. I thought it would be good to have a bass in the place. And I said, why? You know, everybody brings their own instruments. And she said, yeah, well, I found that out and sat in a closet for the past 30 years. And I said, what? She, I, I said, are you telling me that that bass is untouched? She goes, pretty much. A few people touched it here and there, played it. I think it got played on one session, but otherwise it was in the closet all these years. I said, may I look at it? And I went over to the case. And I popped it open, and lo and behold, there was a mint condition 1979 Fender Peak. Jesus. Little and not model with the mirrored pick guard. And I, I said to Mary, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This thing just sits around, it's not doing anything. And she goes, yeah, she goes, somebody offered me six grand for it five years ago. I said, well, you should have taken it. And she goes, why, how much will you give me for it? And I said, well, let's look it up. And we went online and we looked it up really quick on eBay and it, and it ranged between 1,500 and 2,000, depending on the condition. Bases are not that collectible the way guitars are for money. So I said, I'll, I'll give you $1,500 right now. And she said, okay, and I, and I got it. And that's how I got this. And, and you were asking how I feel about it. I love it. You know, this is, this is the sound of, of chaos magic and, uh, and city kids. My 1979 Fender P. Love it. What's the, what's the second guitar on the, on that video? Oh, that's a, I also got that guitar from Al. It's a, 19, it's a 1976 Les Paul Custom Black Beauty. Yeah, it looked like a Les Paul by the body, but I couldn't get a shot at it. So, obviously, you were trying to just show, like, hey, you know, obviously it's easier than having two guitars in the same shot. Were you just trying to show, was it just, was the reason just to showcase the guitars, or just you just cognizant of like, oh, I don't want the same guitar in, in as you're switching the look between the two guitars that you played in both the video. That's a good question. You know, I intended to use the Les Paul on City Kids. And when I started, when I shot the video, the performance stuff, I hadn't recorded the guitars yet. I know that sounds strange and very ass backward that I start shooting the video first, but I like to get a feel of things and I listen to it over and over and over. And, and uh, so I thought I was going to use the Les Paul, but I didn't. I ended up using the GNL Rampage. The, the, the Rampage and the Bitch are on, on that track, not the Les Paul. But I had already shot the footage, so it was too late to go back to the uh, GNL for the, for the video. Well, and I, I love the guitar. It's a beautiful guitar. I just, you know, I just didn't play it on that track. I don't know if that's important. but No, no. I mean, it, it kind of shows you the element of where the video was the focus and the music was would you would you say some of the composition or editing of the the final track was also tied in with the video yeah absolutely i mean if i'm watching the video and it feels too long or too short 
I'll definitely cut the song based on that. Like I like Chaos Magic was probably <clears throat> was a minute probably a minute longer when it was recorded. But when I was editing the video, I started editing the, the song down as well. Like the, the intro was probably two sections more. I just cut that down because it felt like the dynamic of how I performed it was 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 already good with the amount that I have it in now. And then there are several sections that recur throughout the song that I cut down. And I did that during the music video editing process. Now, time-wise, you go to do Chaos Magic. What's the time length? Because I remember we were talking about the way you had to shoot it. You can only shoot it at certain times. Did you put more time into City Kids because you had longer? Or did you put more time into recording Chaos Magic the video? I spent a lot more time on Chaos Magic the video shooting it. Really? Because, you know, I had the pandemic and That's right. really had nothing to do. But, and I, and I, I must, I shot in the video, there's probably five different um, performances, like where I perform the song in a different location. Whereas in City Kids, I only perform the, lo uh, the I only perform the song in one location. Well, actually, that's not true. I guess it's in two. I do one over by the water and then one by the front of the park. So there's two performance setups, whereas there were five in Chaos Magic, and uh, and I shot the performance of, of City Kids in two nights. You know, the wides and the, the close-ups on the hands, and I must have shot the performance uh, on Chaos Magic for 15 days. Yeah, I remember we, we went really in detail and I was really happy. A lot of people thanked me for asking you about that because just like the way that you shot on the bridge, the lighting. I noticed you added, unless I'm mistaken, so I don't want to sound retarded, you added some post-production like CGI or something with the flames and just added things that were not in the chaos magic and there was like, these posters that reminded me of like some 1984, like post-apocalyptic dystopian future where like the bomb, there were so many other elements into this video that you added. And I was wondering where, if you came up with the concept in the edit or that was always thematically going to be put in there. Um, I came up with it as I was going along. Like my wife, one of the elements in the video is these NFTs is one day, you know, my wife said to me, she goes, do you know what an NFT is? And I said, no. And she said, it's called like a uh, cryptocurrency for art. And I said, yeah, I don't, I'm not, <laughs> I don't really know what that means. And she kind of explained it to me that it's art that only exists in the digital space in a contained file that can be traded, sold and then traded. And then the artist gets royalties for it. I was like, hmm, okay. That's interesting. She goes, and I have the, this old friend from Germany, uh, this guy Paul, who's partnered with this guy Ollie, and they have this company called NFTY Skateboards, and they make these skateboarding NFTs. And they're Chromex fans, and they like Chaos Magic, and they would like to do an, an Agro's NFT, NFT and asked me if I wanted to participate in it. And I had my wife show me uh, some of these NFTs, and I immediately got this flash of like, oh, wow, this can be a visual element for the music video. 
So I wasn't so interested in whatever revenue would be generated. I just wanted it as a visual element to the video. And so that night, me and my wife went out into, and we went into the subway and we shot those scenes with the billboards, the digital billboards that they have in the subway. So I skateboarded by one with three panels. And then I initially, initially they sent me not the actual NFTs, but, but just kind of pictures of what the NFTs would look like. So I placed those in the ads and I was like, oh, that looks cool. You know, I didn't, you know, I would have left it like that. And then finally, Paul uh, sends me the mock-up of the NFT and then I dropped that in there. And, and as soon as I saw it in the video, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then coincidentally that night, my friend uh, Frank and Katya, uh, a couple who are very close friends of mine, they have a company called Seamster and they do these... Um, um, these advertisements by uh, they, they do advertising campaigns by by di uh, 3D mapping buildings and then doing projections of advertising on buildings all over the world. They can get called to do a campaign in London or LA or Chicago or wherever and they go there, they map a building and then they do these projections. And Frank called me up and he says, hey Paris, by the way, I just bought a new projector and I'm going to test it tonight. Do you have any content that you'd like me to project? And I was like, yes, oh, project these NFTs. And so I emailed him the NFTs and then uh, he, he said, okay, I'll, I'll project them between eight and 8.30. So I blasted down there, set up my camera and for 30 minutes, I shot those projections on the sides of buildings. And it became such a major element to the video, you know, that if, if Frank hadn't asked me, I wouldn't have done those projections. And if Barblin hadn't communicated with Paul to do the NFTs, that wouldn't have been a, an element in the video. And it's a major part of the video now. And it's just one of those things that, that I just collected as I went. I was like, okay, give me, give me, give me. You know, it, it's very sim you know, it's very similar to, you know, if you if you follow the trail of breadcrumbs of how the piano ended up ended up in Chaos Magic, it goes back like 20 years. When my father gave me the Rhodes. He gave me this Rhodes piano that I never had a place for. So I put it in storage and it was in storage for two decades. And then when Barbara and I bought this house, I said to Barbara and I said, you know, one of those houses that I used to walk by looking up at, <laughs> I wonder who lives there. I live here now, but- uh, That's awesome. It, it is awesome. I, I, every day I get in this house, I think about it. But when we first moved into the house, I, I looked at the parlor floor and I thought, wow, I would love to put the roads here. But you know, it's my wife's house. It's our house together. But you know how it is. If you can, if you finally achieve something like that, you feel like, you know, I don't. I didn't want to take over the place with like musical musical instruments. I wanted it to be a real home, and I didn't want to invade that space. So I asked her. I was like, "Hey, what do you think about putting the roads in the living room?" And she said, "Of course, it's it's beautiful. Let's put it in the living room." So we moved in. I put the roads in the living room, and the next day, Barblin texted me. You have a piano lesson at three o'clock. You cannot have a Rhodes and not know how to play it. That's fantastic. And that next day, Dirk showed up, the piano player on the track, and he became my piano teacher. So like if my dad hadn't given me the Rhodes and we hadn't put it in the living room and my, if my wife wasn't who she is and, and booked me a piano teacher and Dirk didn't show up, and then I, he didn't, we didn't start working on my songs on the piano the way I requested. 
and then I saw the potential and then me asking Dirk to play on the track, you know, it's just like literally following a breadcrumb of circumstance to, to here we are talking about it on the show. When I think about um, just the interaction with Barbara, when we did the release, it, it shows a depth of your relationship that she's not just, Oh, that's my wife. You know, like she's your partner. And so it's cool that you had that respect to say, Hey, would you mind if I place it? And then, in turn, she was like, listen, if you're going to have it here, you got to learn, you know, like it's a beautiful relationship you guys have. And I know she's really involved with the agros and really involved with you. Um, how is that for you having a partner like this at this stage in your life? You know, I mean, obviously you got the work that you do and this music is something that is always going to stay with you. Like, you know, when you were kids or grow up, you don't think about, oh, adding your wife to the career side or the management side of your music. How has it been having someone to help you with these things? I count my lucky stars every day, you know, because we probably wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if it wasn't for her. You know, she encouraged it. You know, I felt for a long time that I, you know, I, I had like trauma, you know, that held me back from even playing my instruments for years. I mean, I, I, my guitars were in amps were in storage for nine years. You know, I didn't play anything at all. And to a certain extent, it was, you know, the trauma of, of giving something your all, you know, trying harder at something that you ever did in your life, sacrificing and struggling to make something happen and then not, and then have it fall apart for foolish reasons. It was, it was traumatic. And it, and it left me in, incapable of, Start of, of having enthusiasm, of uh, of feeling urgency, so I just kind of like settled back and I and I became comfortable with this idea. You know, I, I even used to use the phrase all the time. I used to be a musician. You know, I would say that on set to people I work with. You know, it would somehow come up my past, and and I'd go, Yeah, I used to be a musician. And they would say, What do you mean you used to be a musician? I was like, no. It was just a phrase that I used, and and. Uh, Barbara, to a large extent, helped me recognize the uh, the shackles that I put on myself, the stumbling block that I set up, the walls I had created around myself in self defense. And now I've, you know, after you know, after putting out chaos magic, I felt like I was liberated, and I I had a new sense of urgency. Urgency is so powerful. You know, I, you know, harken back to when I was a teenager and I couldn't wait to go to rehearsal and I would get, as soon as school was over, I'd run over, run home and play guitar for hours. You know, that urgency to, to, to make something happen right now. I have that. And, you know, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't make songs and videos like Chaos Magic and City Kids. But it's really something that I recaptured that was dormant, that was dead, really. When you think of the time when you started thinking, I used to be a musician, what was the impetus of that? Like, where was the break consciously where you're like, I'm going to put these musician instruments away. My focus is going to be on film. Um, what was it? What was that that made you do that? The last Chromex tour. You know, I remember we were packing up. You know, we were in Amsterdam. 
we were parked by a canal. And we were going to get off. We were going to leave the tour bus behind and all get into cabs to go to the airport. So we were taking all of our personal stuff off the van, off the off the tour bus, and uh, it was all laid out on the sidewalk. And you know, you accumulate stuff on tour, so you're trying to pack all this stuff that's just been kind of sitting in your bunk into your suitcases, and you realize that you know when you got there, you were already too packed and there's no room for all this extra stuff. So I had almost everything packed and the last thing was my pedal board. And I just started pulling the pedals off my pedal board and jamming them into my, into my uh, suitcase. And then when I, I finally got all that to fit and then I lifted up my pedal board and everybody just kind of standing there, the tour manager and the other guys in the band. And I just kind of looked at the canal and I just, I threw my pedal board into the canal. <laughs> and the tour manager looked at me and goes, what'd you do that for? I said, well, I won't be needing it anymore. And it was, that was, that was when I decided. I was like, I don't need it anymore because I'm done. And we flew back home and that was it. That was the end of it. And then quickly, were you, you had to be already invested in the career that you have now or what was the, when you got off the plane, your thought process was now to have a real job. Like, what was what was your thoughts coming back to New York, thinking that was it for music? You know, again, you know, I, I talk about you know when we made Age of Coral and, and the urgency and the fire and the power and trying harder to do something than you ever did in your life. You know, I did that same thing with, with Revenge. You know, I, I managed to get us a major label record contract. You know, the, the the reputation of the band was in the shitter. We were literally starting from scratch. It was a fight every step of the way. And, you know, after, you know, overcoming all those obstacles and making it happen and getting us that label and getting us in the studio, getting us the, you know, everything, you know, I, I got us, I maintained our publishing. I maintained our merchandise. We weren't managed by anything. We were a major label record deal. You know, and we didn't owe anybody anything. We had all our instruments. We had a van, a trailer. You know, we owned our own merch. You know, we were all set for life. And no matter what, how perfect it was, the situation was miserable. And it was just intolerable. And so, you know, I just decided. I, and, and also, you know, I mentioned this before, you know, when you write an album, even if you've written five albums before, when that album is recorded, you can't imagine how you could ever write another album. You're just empty. And you don't have that fire and urgency once that's done because everything that you wanted to accomplish, it's there. You're like, ah, I've done it. And that's what I had done with Revenge. You know, of all the albums that I wrote the most uh, than I did on any of the other albums, I, almost 90% of the music. I produced the album, you know, I got the record deal, I was managing the band, I was like, I was overloaded, I tried so hard, I had accomplished so much, and it was just like, it all fell on deaf ears, because, you know, my, my, my bandmates were just, you know, ungrateful, thank, thankless, you know, unaccountable, and it, it just became intolerable. So when I left, I was empty, you know, my, my, my tank was empty, it, I, I, I wasn't I didn't have even like one song to go forward and be like, yeah, I, okay, I, this is, you know, this is the fuel that will fire me. And I, I just didn't, I just didn't have any of that. And 
And I, I'm, I, when it comes to creativity, I, I'm definitely the monkey with the shiny object thing. I went back to New York and the film business is just something that is extremely attractive and fun and lucrative. And I jumped right into that. And I didn't even think about the fact. I just put all my instruments into, you know, my, my not all my instruments, just my, my guitar and my amps. I put them into storage and I didn't think about them. Didn't even think about them for nine years because I was just so busy redirecting my creativity into the film business. And I loved it and I still love it. But, you know, once I, once I uh, cast off the the trauma and the and and the walls that I created around myself, I felt like I cheated myself out of something. You know, it, it, you know, it's a strange thing to get triggered by something like this, but something in a film. I saw this. I saw this movie called uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer. And there's a scene where young Bobby Fischer, Bobby, Bobby Fischer as a schoolboy, is winning all these chess tournaments and he's missing school. And his parents get called in by, you know, the principal. And the principal sits him down and goes, listen, you know, Bobby, little Bobby is falling behind in his schoolwork and uh, we think it's time for him to give up chess. <laughs> and Bobby Fischer's father looks at her and goes, my son is better at chess than you will ever be at anything in real life. <laughs> and you want him to stop? And, uh, and I, I just sat there and I, and, and I kept thinking to myself, like having guilt for having the ability to play music and, and not do it. Because I know a lot of people who want to be musicians. And they, and they do everything that they can do. They actually get together with four of the guys and cooperate with each other and they don't, and they don't have success. And I felt like I was just throwing this ability away. And that to me felt really guilty, but I still didn't do anything about it. It wasn't until, you know, the combination between Barblin and, and Pete Asarisi, the drummer who played on this thing, because we would meet at this coffee shop every day and we'd sit around and talk about Thin Lizzy and Rush and, you know, goofy stuff that you could talk about at the coffee shop. And one day, you know, after hanging out and having coffee for like six months, he says to me, he goes, what are you doing today for the rest of the afternoon? And I said, nothing, just hang out here. He goes, good, don't think, just stand up. I go, what? He goes, stand up. He goes, we're going to go to my studio and jam. He's like, no, don't say no, don't say no, don't think, just come over. We'll have fun, we'll jam for an hour, and if you don't like it, we'll come back and drink coffee. And I was like, uh, he's like, don't, just come. So we went to the studio and we jammed for eight hours. And it was like amazing. And then the next day we did the same thing. We did the same thing. And that was the beginning of it. I mean, even though, you know, I stopped playing with Pete a couple of years ago, uh, he was in New York and he was about to move to LA. And we had this like two week window. And I said, let's go into the studio and record something before you leave. So I booked the studio and we went and recorded Ghosts in New York. And, and that's how he, you know, we he ended up being on a track, and I, I was so happy because he played it so perfectly. And such a great drummer and a great guy, and I and I owe him a lot of uh, debt of uh, debt of gratitude for for uh, stoking the fires again. Now I know, this, I know it sounds very oversimplistic to no, say no. that I felt trauma, and I and I and I, you know, my hands were tied, but I really did. 
well, that's what I was going to get to is music is such a huge part of your life, you know, from what we talked about in the last episode from the earliest stages. When you turned off the idea that you're a musician, were you not even, were you excited about new music? Were you cognizant or did you just throw your entire life into the, you know, your career and your, your wife? Like, what would, did you have any trauma? Like, oh, listening to music or, you know, obviously with the internet, with the Chromag stuff, like it had to be little pinpricks of like the see, This is why I don't fuck with this music. This is why, like I have, I have tons of friends who have done that with bands. Like, you know, hardcore does a weird thing, but even deeper when we're talking about what you went through, where you were trying to make Chromags more than just the New York hardcore band. You had them on a large label all the stuff we talked about, it's got to have, you got to have little triggers throughout this process of not playing where you're almost reinforced why you're not playing. Well, you know, to a certain extent, it's mostly because of people, you know, on Facebook and stuff like that, people would share stuff with me. So I would hear the endless, you know, Harley trying to diminish my contribution the day and not just diminish it but like erase it and you know because the truth is there was no way for him to go forward with the chromags in an honest way and acknowledge my contribution you know what i mean it's how 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 could he go forward in a genuine honest way and and acknowledge the fact that i was the primary songwriter in the band there's just no way to do it so he had to and be credible. Um, so he had to just basically eliminate me from the story, and that definitely bothered me. And it and it and it and it reinforced the uh, my uh, my desire to separate myself from it completely because it, it just didn't feel worth the fight. And I also felt like you know anybody who owns Age of Quarrel, you know, all they have to do is look at the label on the record or on the back. It says, all songs written by Paris Mayhew and Harley Flanagan. My name is first. And my name is first is because I, I was the primary songwriter. You know, do you, do you think Harley would have allowed my name to be first if, it wasn't, if that wasn't the case? He, he fought me tooth and nail on it. I mean, when we were putting together the credits for that record, it was like a battle, like blood, like insanity. You know, the insane arguments and screaming. He just figured he could scream his way into making me submit to not being the primary songwriter in the band. So, you know, all those years later when he's going forward, he, he puts out press releases that say, 35 years ago, I wrote an album, you know, talking about the age of quarrel. You know, I mean, how, what kind of person could be such a bold-faced liar? And to an audience, they could so easily vet the statement by looking at the record. So that kind of thing always just, uh, that was, those were the needles. Were there music that you were still uh, interested in pursuing, like listening to, like artists that you kept up with, or was your focus primarily what your work was, your old favorites, and hanging out with Barb and building that relationship? Um. I definitely, it seemed like there was a cutoff 
in 2000 for me listening to new music, um, except for Slipknot. I, I think I discovered them on that tour because of our tour manager, Andre Abdo. He introduced me to Slipknot and I, and I loved them immediately and, and, uh, and, and have ever since. And a little bit of System of the Down, um, but really nothing else. But it's, it, it is interesting that you draw that parallel between playing music and appreciating music because it seemed like immediately after I, I released Chaos Magic, I started discovering new music again, like this band, Polyphia, who I absolutely love. They're also instrumental music, but they're not metal. They're kind of some kind of bizarre music. If you, if you know if you know what they sound like, they're great. Um, Turnstile is pretty cool. Uh, I just I literally just discovered them like a month ago. I mean, I like the fact that they are a hardcore band, but all of a sudden they're not, which I can appreciate, obviously, because that's what I do. Yeah, the world of what. The world that you created in hardcore, specifically, there was a uh, very short margins, and what some people even argued the Age of Quarrel record opened the margins in hardcore. But by today's standards, there's such a blurred lines that at this stage, a band like Turnstile has such a connection within the hardcore scene that they could probably jump out and play a ukulele. Uh, and they would still be at the band that they that they came from, Justice Trep, who is uh, also an Angel Dust. Angel Dust is another band that some would argue is not a hardcore band anymore. The line is blurred, and it's more of a cultural thing, more so than um, specific rules to the way the sound is. And this butts right up to why I think now you could have the young audience playing City Kids or Chaos Magic because a feel, a vibe, an authenticity, and a direct lineage into the culture has become a more important thing than trying to sound similar to Dead Kennedys and Black Flag. You know, and there's bands that mimic Black Flag and Dead Kennedys and sound solely to get a major label and never have to play punk shows in the first place. So things have been flipped on their head mm. and it, it's cool that you see some of these newer stuff, but it's, it's a different world. And um, I always relate back to my friends who stopped playing in whatever local band they were in or national band. Some of them stay in with music and they'll hit me up. What I've learned is, is whenever there's like exactly what you said, the minute that someone pops their head back out and starts playing again, right away, the, 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 the scene has changed musically and there's always an excitement. Oh my God, I just checked this out. Oh my God. Like, you know, like it, it had to be wonderful to get that fire rolling again, you know, like yeah. kind of like get a turn to forge back on. And so when I looked at city kids, there's so many elements to this man. And, and, and I actually, it ties so again back into today's hardcore youth culture. Um, not that skateboarding was ever not a part of our culture, but the pandemic has led itself to create thousands of hardcore kids who have picked up everything. And actually, it was cool you brought up you put, you have a shot of the rollerbladers because there's guys skateboarding, there's guy there's gal skateboarding, there's guys 
doing bike tricks. Now there's a ton of girls roller skating. What you said about, you know, like this is what city kids do throughout the pandemic. Skate parks is like one thing that everybody gravitated towards, whether they were 20 and never skated or they had skated and picked it back up. And, um, the, the, the biggest contrast to city kids versus chaos magic is that city kids has shots in the daytime. And those are shots of the first time you've had extras. And I was wondering if you were cognizant or trying to show that the daytime shots were where the extras and the, and the nighttime shots were mostly the band. Yeah. I mean, the idea there was kind of that, you know, New York is a 24 hour city. And that you could go to a place like a skateboard park at night and there's still activity there. It's not like it closes down when the daytime ends. So, and I also was trying to stress that idea that, you know, I'm no longer a city kid. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the ghost, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grown up and I'm doing my thing, but all that is still part of my, my life and I still ride a skateboard. So I, I felt like if I would shoot myself at night in the same space, and show the kids skating during the day, there would be some kind of, you know, theme there. Not, not, again, nothing literal, just poetic, you know, visual po uh, poetry. And I, and, you know, and, and, and I, I also wanted the video to feel a little bit different. I wanted the performance to feel like the same night as Chaos Magic, but I wanted that, you know, that's why I had it happen only at the end of the song or the middle of the song. <laughs> it's hard to tell. The song is so long. Where did you get the ideas to implement the skate park? I wanted, I wanted it to look like old New York and between the graffiti and the sodium vapor lights, it was one of the only, you know, you, it, you know, you know, it is so difficult to, to, to shoot something that looks like New York. I know I have all the cityscape shots throughout the video, but they were extraordinarily hard to get because the city has all these new street lights. They're like this with this LED light that's horrible. Like, ah, and they don't have bulbs on. You know what I mean? To soften the light. You know, whoever got the contract was like, fuck it. I'll save $20 million and not put the bulbs on and just have this horrible, terrible light. So if you're shooting a shot at night and you set up your camera and there's 20 of these horrible lights, there's so much noise pollution. I mean, I'm not noise pollution, but light pollution, but you can't see anything above those lights. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so to compose a shot in New York City now, it's not like it used to be where, you know, you could just go in New York and set up a camera and you have this picturesque shot because the lights ruin it. So I had to go around the city and find spots and figure out how, like, to put, like, a light behind a pole or a sign. And, you know, if you look at those shots, you know, I have one that has, like, the don't walk sign. And the only reason that don't walk sign is so big in the foreground is because it's covering up two streetlights. Huh. Ruining my shot. You know, I had to do those kinds of things. Uh, but the thing about the LES Skateboard Park is it looks like the Warriors. That's what I wanted. I wanted it to look, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if I mentioned this the first time. You know, I, I thought it was kind of a, a strange thing to mention because people always attach themselves to this idea of authenticity. I don't really know if I could be inauthentic if I tried because I've been doing this ever since I was a kid. But Within, as a self-defense mechanism, when I was writing the music with Pete, not not with Pete, but when I was when Pete was playing drums, when I was writing that music and I had assembled these songs, and I was having trouble putting a band together, 
I had to try to put my music in a context. You know, that's just what I do. I'm an artist. I'm a storyteller. I had to figure out some way to put it in a context that was somehow separate from me because it wasn't working doing the band. So I had this idea of creating a story about a band and that I would have all these songs that I wrote be original music for a film that would be about a band. And there would be actors who played the part of the band, but I would write all the music for it. And, and literally, when I decided to do this, I wrote a treatment. And the band in the treatment was called the Agros. Like that wasn't the name of my band, that was the name of the band in the store. And um, when I decided to make the video for Chaos Magic, it wasn't to release Chaos Magic, it was to create the look of the movie. I was literally making a sketch so I could show it to somebody who I was pitching the story to. This is what it will look like. This is the look of the movie about this band, the Agros. And I wrote the treatment and I pitched it to a couple of people. And then I made the video. And as soon as the video was done, I was able to somehow let go of that distancing mechanism I had created by writing the story. I know this, this sounds like psychological mumbo jumbo, but I had created this psychological mechanism for separating myself from my music and putting it in a context that I wouldn't be devastated by if it didn't work. <laughs> and, uh, but, it, but when I saw the video finished, again, me and Barbara discussed it, and she, was, she just said, you should just put this out. You can always do your movie. You can, you know, if it gets picked up, you can still write songs for it, but just put this out. And literally, the second that I put it out, I, and I put it out as Agros, the, the name of the band in the story, the, the, the story disappeared. And it was me again. And again, I didn't feel like telling that story the first time we talked. But I, I really don't see any reason not to tell it now because I think it's kind of interesting in retrospect. Because an artist sometimes just needs a context. Because creating is hard. It's, it's an emotionally taxing thing. It may seem like, you know, especially the way I talk about it, it's just this natural thing. But, you know, I'm very guarded about it. I'm, you know, I'm uh, uh, concerned about the effect it'll have on other people. And, of course, when you accomplish something already, everything is going to be held to that standard. And uh, that's always a concern as well. So I guess I needed to put it in that context. No, I think context gives you a box to fill, you know, like it, there's, I listen to a lot of very weird European music, some of it electronic, a lot of it metal based. And sometimes there is no context and it's so free flowing that it loses the ability for someone to go, what the fuck is going on? Having a box to fill, having aesthetics to keep value to. And um, especially like with the city kids thing, you know, you have a lot of rolling things, the bike rolls, the skateboard rolls. You have the same shots from Chaos Magic. You have the skateboard element, and then you had you added more element of the subway tracks, the subway bus, and it's so much what you know. Like you said, it, it comes from movies like The Warriors and movies like Kids from New York. You know, like this is exactly 
what this is. So to have context to the music, it, it makes sense. And I, I, the whole time we've been talking, I, I noticed a couple times on the big screen, I was trying to slow it down. How did you, how did you put the, there's a couple times it looks like either there's flames or helicopters. Was that, was that like a, a quiet little, like little thing you were like, let's see if people pick that up. Like there's these little random flash shots that you're covering something that was in the background. And again, it goes back to this dystopian, you know, 1984 shit where you have, and, and, and I would look, I, I thought I saw it on the TV, but I couldn't pause it quick enough. So I've been using my finger and scrolling through the YouTube. Did What was the idea thematically to put the helicopter, the lightning and the flames in it? Well, I, I really just wanted to fill the frames and make them interesting. But and initially, you know, going into the video, you know, I, I try to think about what a city kid sees. And, you know, this whole idea of looking up again, you know, that's why I put that shot of the plane crashing into the World Trade Center behind, behind me while I'm performing. Because that's something that city kids saw and lived with, and they lived with that, that trauma. That's, those are the kinds of things you see. There's a, there's a great picture that I used as a promo thing about six months ago when I originally wanted to put out City Kids. Um, and it's a, it's a shot of kids playing basketball in a playground. And behind them are buildings on fire and the firemen trying to put them out. Like it was like from the Bronx when all the landlords were setting all the buildings on fire. So there was like a row of buildings and they're all abandoned except this one that was on fire. But these kids were just playing basketball. You know, because that's just a normal thing. That's why I put that in the background. And then I thought, you know, that day when the planes hit the building and the, the sky was exploding, you know, since I had the building, you know, the plane in there, I thought I would throw some explosions in the background. And then, of course, I saw the parallel between the explosion and the Age of Quarrel album cover. So I like that as a theme. And, uh, you know, I just try to fill the skies, you know, the background. You know, it's the, the same reason why I put three or four of, of me in the frame. Because if you just shoot one person standing in a frame, it's not as easy to compose as it is when you put three or four. So I put three or four of me. And when I saw that there was a space in the sky, I put the moon in the sky. You know, I, I put a helicopter in the sky. I put the helicopters flying past the moon. I put you know, the World Trade Center. I put the NFTs projected on the side of buildings it's you know it's 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 the, the horse into the duck thing you know taking one thing and making it another and just building on it until every frame is as interesting as i can possibly make it and i also wanted the same frame of me performing to appear different every time it shows up so one time it'll show up and there'll be lightning another time it'll show up there'll be a full moon another time it shows up there are helicopters flying by you know, that kind of thing. Just to give people something to look at. And the go-go dancers. I don't know if you noticed the go-go dancers yet. No, I gotta look, I have to scroll again. I just like that you added elements, man. I like that there's not just the flat shot and what you picked up that you went back and you put in. And I think it just, it adds layers, just like we were talking about with the, the composition elements. You know, like you didn't leave it. Ah, you know what? The guitar and bass drums is enough. And... Were you cognizant as the music progressed that the shots had to change? Or were you just trying to make it all fill out throughout the time without anything like, okay, once the piano comes, 
I want more of this in the shot. Absolutely. I broke it down. I, I mean, I did the, the main performance from the game, Dan. But then all as I shot new elements, I only wanted to shoot uh, for certain parts of the song. And I, I, I had planned and invited Pete Asarisi to perform drums. And he, he lives in California. And uh, we had this whole plan for him to come into town. But my drum set, or one of my drum sets, is up at Al, Albie's house, the guitar collector guy. And he's not speaking to me at the moment. So Pete kept saying, oh, how are we gonna shoot the video without your drums? As if it's the only drum set that could be in, in the video. So I, I was in contact with him for a while, trying to encourage him to come. And it just sometimes people just create these obstacles and he didn't end up coming to New York to shoot the video, even though I kept pushing the the, uh, the premiere date to, accom to accommodate him coming, but he never did. And I also planned to shoot deer uh, playing the keyboard parts, but uh, scheduling just didn't work out. I just I started working. I I, I did uh, two gigs with the uh, Toilet Boys. I, I did one gig already, but I'm gonna do a second gig uh, at Webster Hall. So I had to rehearse with them and learn the songs and edit the video and shoot the video. It was just too much time. I just never got around to my dismay because I really wanted to have Derek and Pete in the video. It just would have given me more visual elements, but I also had the deadline and uh, yeah, so it didn't work out. Um, I was going to get in a toilet boys thing, but I wanted to close out what, where we can get the NFT. Like the NFT is available, right? It's like a website with availability. Like there's a link that you can actually become the owner of that NFT. Is that something that was just like, ah, oh, you know what? If someone wants to go there, like, um, I know that NFTs are slowly starting to even be involved. Anthony Town is involved with uh, the royalty exchange, and he's actually starting to be involved musically with NFTs through Little Dicky and stuff. So. I think you're probably the first hardcore musician that I know of that has an NFT. Is that something that you're looking to say, Hey, if you want to pick up the NFT or is that just like, that's an added bonus. Someone has to look and find if they wanted that. Here's what it is. Barblin set this whole thing up. The NF the three NFTs were made by NFTY skateboards. Uh, this Paul and Ollie and the uh, NFTs will be auctioned off uh, on open sea. It's a site, um, and, the, and they will auction off all three what they call boards. Um, and uh, I, you know, I told Paul and Ollie and, and Barblin and I discussed it. You know, we didn't want the NFTs to monetize them. I wanted them because they were a cool vi visual element for the video. And when Paul sent them to me, and I loved them so much, and made them such a dominant part of the video that I felt, you know, nothing but gratitude towards them. And me and Barbara were discussing, you know, how the auction would go, because what, the way it works is the, the, the initial uh, NFT is auctioned off and then there's somebody who owns it. Yes. And somebody who then, once the person who owns it can trade it, and every time it's traded, it's traded for money. And the, then the original owner gets a royalty and, and also the creators get a royalty. So what we did, what we, the way we set up the deal is the proceeds from the auction will go to the Tony Hawk Foundation for building skateboard parks. 
So we're not going to benefit from the NFTs at all. No royalties uh, and no sale. The um, the sale revenue will go to the uh, the Tony Hawk Foundation, and then the royalties will go to the NFT creators. Oh wow, that's awesome! I, I think it's so cool when you can have something cool go on, and it be for charity. There's so much crazy stuff in the world, especially with the uh, the Tony Hawk and the skateboarding with the city kids. It's a nice touch. Um, obviously, you're a city you're a city kid. Uh, the toilet boys, I remember met from Two Damn Hype Chord, uh, hip putting me, getting me hip to them, and in fact they played here. And so, I didn't see any videos, but obviously because those guys are all like the they were like a house band for Debbie Harry or something, that just became a band. How did you? I mean, obviously you have probably were friends with them before they were ever in that band. Like, what is your what is your connection with the Toilet Boys? And then how did you get uh, pulled into the to playing with them? Because I saw the I saw the thing and I was like, wait, what's? Like, I thought I read it wrong. Like, wait, what? Am I? And then I'm like, oh yeah, this makes sense. He's from New York. They're from New York. Well, like all stories go, what was this girl? <laughs> there was this girl, and me and her were indulging in. Uh, boy girl things and uh she mentioned that she was a go-go dancer at this club called squeeze box so uh you know uh i thought her out i went to squeeze box seeing if she was go-go dancing to discover that squeeze box was this crazy rock and roll insanity drag queens you know and chris from the Black Crows is sitting at the bar and Drew Barrymore is dancing in the bar topless. And just like, it was just a crazy, it was, it, when New York was such a stale city, this club squeeze box was amazing. And I was leaning up against the bar and this guy walks up to me and his name was Michael Schmidt. And he was the club promoter. And he said to me, what, what are you doing here? I've never seen you here before. You know, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a predominantly gay crowd. So I stuck, stuck out like a sore thumb, I think. And he came up to me and he was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And I said, well, uh, I'm looking for a go-go dancer named blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, okay. He goes, well, she's not here tonight. And I said, okay. And then he said, can I buy you a drink? And I was like, yes. And we had a drink and we we became great friends. And he was the best man at my wedding. Oh, but, shit. But the house band at Squeezebox was based, I won't even call him the house band. I'll say that the squeeze box scene spawned two outstanding bands, and that was the Lunachicks and the Toilet Boys. So these bands played there frequently. So you know, as I hung out at Squeeze Box more and more, I I saw the Toilet Boys very often, and because they were friends with Michael Schmidt, and Schmidt and I hung out all the time, we would go see them all the time, and I just became a fan. And, uh, and of the lunatics as well, and then you know the you know time went on, and you know I think the toilet broke toilet boys broke up quite a while ago, but the lunatics have gotten back together and they're doing these huge shows at a uh, Webster Hall, and the toilet boys are playing with them, and uh, they called me because I'm friends with them. You know, Guy, the singer of the toilet boys, took all of my press photos. When we did Chaos Magic, all those pictures of me on the bridge and stuff, a uh, guy took all those pictures. And uh, so, I, you know, I've been connected with them. And I know Sean very well. 
And they just, Adam, the bass player, called me and said, listen, we're doing a couple of shows, and would you consider playing with us? And I said, absolutely. So I sat down and learned the songs and rehearsed with them, and we played a show last week at Rockaway, and it was tons of fun. I mean, they're, they are a rock and roll ride. They're very, they're like a kiss. Kiss meets the Dead Boys. They're just that's a great, a great dude. That's actually team. a great thing. I was going to mention they, the Dead Boys elements definitely in there with the Toilet Boys and Kisses. Kiss with the outfits and stuff makes a total thing too. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. So we're going to play at Webster Hall on November twenty seventh with the Lunatics. That's fucking badass. We're doing one more. We're going to do like a benefit. The Bowery Ballroom, I think, in early December. But we'll only play a couple of songs, and that'll that'll probably be my whole run. Have you ever been asked or approached to be in any kind of bands like that before and turned it down because you weren't playing music? Is that opening the door of you filling in? Like, did that stoke any fires to that, or was it like, ah, oh, these are my friends, I don't mind doing it? Um, I, I, you know, I've only played on stage with one other band. To do that kind of thing, I did a gig with Leeway at Irving Plaza once when they opened up for Suicidal Tendencies. That was just a one-time thing. But over these years where I was inactive, the only time there was kind of like a possibility that I would play with somebody was, uh, was uh, <laughs> I hate to say it because, you know, I, I don't even know if I was really considering it, but when Limp Bizkit was auditioning, they were having this national uh, audition you know, they were having auditions nationwide in, in guitar centers, I think. And I was living in L.A. at the time. And I somehow came across the manager of Limp Bizkit. And uh, we started talking. And I said, uh, oh, I would never audition. I said, I think my pedigree would get me, you know, at least in the door to actually play with the guys to try it out. And he goes, oh, I completely agree. And he wrote down Fred Durst's number on the back of, a, of his business card. And he said, he goes, I already spoke to Fred. He's waiting for your call. Just give him a call. And uh, I walked around with that card in my pocket for about a month before I threw it away. What was that? What was it? This wasn't a thing. Oh, that's what I was wondering. When you said gave up being a musician, I know that a part of the thing that a lot of people do, I have a friend, Ben, amazing um, recording engineer, but also some of plays multiple, he ended up being an incubus just randomly. Like as a dude, like a hardcore dude, like tried out, got in. And that's like, he's a pro dude who writes, I don't know how much he adds to the band, but he's been in a band like over a decade now or more. But I, I, I wondered when you said I was done, why Paris Mayhew just didn't get linked up with something that was like the steady paying rock gig or if that just didn't, that didn't like stoke any fires for you to be a touring musician playing other people's material. It really didn't appeal to me at all. And again, like I said, monkey with a shiny object thing, I was so distracted and immersed in the, in the film business. You know, people ask me from time to time to play and I just, Again, I think I just had that armor on. I was just like, no thanks. I, and I didn't pursue it. I mean, I certainly could have pursued positions in bands, but that was just never my thing. You know, I, I'm a band maker, not a band joiner. Was it cool to play with Leeway, knowing that years before you guys shared the stage of the Ritz and all that stuff? Was it fun to 
you know, play another hardcore band's music or was like, oh, that was cool. I did it. I'm going to move on. Well, this was, you know, this was way, way back in the day. This was probably 1986, seven, maybe. Oh, so it was post, it was like right on the Ritz time and you just filled in for Michael, Michael Gibson or someone like that. No, I played bass. I okay. In, I played it. I, I filled in for Zowie. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I honestly don't, didn't follow that stuff. Zowie was out. And uh, I remember calling up Zowie and saying, hey, you know, can I come over and you can show me some of the bass? And he was like, no. He was, <laughs> he was very unhappy that I was doing it. He didn't say don't do it, but I could tell that he didn't want me to do it. And, and I said, I'm not joining the band. I'm just playing one show. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so I did. I played the one show and that was it. I, you know, I, 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 I there was no, there was no invitation. There was no interest in, I was in the Chromex. You know, I had my band. I just did it for fun. When you think of those shows back then, and so how many people, like people like me, I look at them rich shows and like, it's funny, after, after you came on, we've had a run of people from the um, Carl from Breakdown and Lee Leeway, who, you know, uh, Walter Shreppels, all the um, rich, so many different people have put their take on the Rock Hotel experience shows. And I realized I, I got so enamored in your story. I didn't want to break away and be like, hey, how, here, what's up with this show? But now looking back at these posters, how do you feel knowing that you were a part of some of these like there's these lineups that we'll never see again. Like even though they're the ill will and the, and the bad taste that was left with the publishing and all the stupid stuff that went on with Harley, do you have the fond memories or at least to say like you can hang your hat on being like, you know how many times we fucking killed them rich shows? Like what is your perspective now in hindsight, looking at some of them big marquee shows like that? Oh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm completely detached from any of the negativity. I really, I really, I've, I've played all those emotions out and I'm able to look back with fascination at that time. I mean, I just think about even that gig, you know, that I played with Leeway at Irving Plaza with suicidal tendencies. And I was standing on stage playing the bass with these guys that I knew really well, you know, who were also a popular band. I mean, that alone is, was just a spectacular thing to be like, hey, come play bass with us at Irving Plaza with suicidal tendencies. It was so cool. But literally, but the entire time we were playing the show, Doctor No from the Bad Brains was standing next to me on the stage, you know, just watching the show. You know, that's what it was like back then. We were all friends. It wasn't like, you know, you went to a show and the Bad Brains played and left. The Bad Brains hung out. They were our friends. The Carnivore were our friends. I was bartending that night that I played with Lee Way. So I, I jumped out from behind the bar, ran up to the stage, played the show, and then went back to the bar. Where you know Pete Steele was probably standing having a drink, and uh, you know any number of people. We all the, the fact that all those vibrant, extraordinary bands were happening all at the same time, and we were all friends, is so bizarre. Like it's it's like a dream. I can't even imagine. It's like a script I wrote about a fantasy <laughs> musical situation. I, I wish I could go back. There. I wish I could go visit it for one night and stand in a room with. Agnostic Front, The Bad Brains, Murphy's Law, Cro-Mags, uh, Carnivore, and, and, and where we all just sat around talking about girls and guitars and 
whatever the hell we were talking about as teenagers. It was it was fabulous. It was fan fucking tastic. And I look back at that time with reference. I don't I don't I definitely don't cloak that time with any ill feeling. I, I felt extremely lucky to be a part of it. And not just in retrospect, I knew it at the time. I would try to drag my friends from my from my neighborhood where I lived. I was like, you don't understand. There's something happening here that is insane. You got to come down and see some of these bands. Murphy's Law. I mean, I must have seen Murphy's Law 75 times. And the Bad Brains 75 times. And Carnivore, God knows how many times. Because they used to play all the time. The, and the Beastie Boys. <laughs> and White Zombie. And Run DMC. You know, all, these were local bands. You know, it, it was extraordinary. And, we, and, and the fact that we were all friends just, you know, you know, so, we should have made friends, but we didn't because when, when people have something at stake, things change. But when we were all just kids standing on the street, man, it was really powerful. That's what I wanted to get to. Um, obviously, with through these podcasts and just being a fan, I look at New York hardcore, um, especially uh, such a crazy time that now we're talking about it was 42 years ago where some of this stuff is really starting and so many different people from the scene who had small but indelible connections have passed. And now we're even seeing more and more of legitimate people who have had huge contributions very early on pass. There was a cataclysm. Like it was a, you know, the unstoppable force, the immovable object and this energy that came from it really charge an entire culture that's still, you know, I, I think punk was changed. I think rock was changed. I think street culture was changed and we're still seeing, we're still seeing the culture vultures and the corporate buy into and steal from what was basically your childhood, like stuff that you took, like, Oh, these are my friends. and we play in these bands and these small places and a shitty part of New York that nobody wants. And 40 years later, it's a boot store or whatever the hell CB's is. There's a yeah. fucking movie and there's a CB store in the airport. This is your childhood and, and you left your own place in it. But I had, I'm so glad you said that you were cognizant of the energy it was because it, it had to have been, it had to have felt that you were in the nucleus of something special at that time. Absolutely. And it, and it still lives with me. It, and I, and I dare say it haunts me. And that's why, I'm, I'm so glad we're talking about the song City Kids. That's why the second half of City Kids is called Ghosts of New York. Because there isn't a street corner in New York that I can stand on without being overrun with memories of something that happened there. I mean, I don't know how often a subway car pulls up and I'll see a flash of somebody on the car and I think it's Sean Taggart, but Sean Taggart when he was 16. And I, and I watched the kid come out of the train and literally in that moment, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just like catapulted to the past. And I, and I, and I feel like, oh my God, there's Sean right there. But the 16 year old Sean or the, you know, I, I don't know. The other day I was standing on the street corner and I looked up and I thought I saw Eric Casanova, but wow. 15-year-old Casanova. And I don't mean this like in a, like, like I'm seeing things kind of way, but it's just like these flashes of memory. And 
And, you know, I can't stand by the John Barbados store where CBGB's was without being flooded with a thousand memories, without turning around. It's the same thing as standing in, you know, Dealey Plaza. You know, if you stand in Dealey Plaza and you look up at the window, the sixth floor where Kennedy was shot, and then you turn and you look over your shoulder, you will see the limousine coming around the corner. Yeah. You will turn and you will see the grassy knoll. And you will see Zabruder standing on the on the grass filming. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's, that's something that's embedded in your memory from watching the Zapruder film. But I have that same feeling like in a thousand places in New York. And that's why I have that title, Ghosts of New York, because I'm, I'm, you know, I, I see the, these memories all the time. I originally came up with that title, uh, to be the title of my book and, and which it probably will be. But I, I didn't feel like it needed to be reserved that I can also use it in the song. And that's why that song is called Ghosts of New York. And, and, and it's not just, it's not just people. The reason I feel those connections with all those people is because of the music scene and, and this extraordinary thing we were a part of. You know, most kids, you know, they grow up in high school, they play football, basketball, all that kind of stuff. And that becomes this like a, you know, powerful, nostalgic, force in their life, something that they hearken back to and look at. But it's it was something that happened just in their little in their town. It was powerful in their town, but but the, that little thing, we didn't have footballs. We had guitars and basses and drums and we made bands. And we played in the adult world because we were able to. And that music had an effect on the world. So that that you know high school glory that most people have regionally happened all around the world for us and it echoes back at us forever i mean i can't walk down the street or go on set without a grip or a producer or a director or somebody you know talking to me with reverence about what i did when i was in high school <laughs> it's crazy no it, it's the haunting effect that i talk about in ghost of new york it's it's a lasting thing you know your impact has waves of reverberation that changed so many different people's lives, you know, and it changed mine. And, and exactly, you feel when someone tells you, Hey, this is so amazing. I know the first thing I hear about this, like, you don't know what it did for me, you know, like yeah. there's a, there's a thing. I love that you. But I also want to stress that it wasn't something that was like happening, you know, internally. It wasn't just happening to me, it was happening to all of us. You know, Jimmy Gestapo. You know, the other guys in the chrome bags, Pete Steele, you know, when we when none of us were famous, we all found each other. How bizarre is that? We all found ourselves hanging out together in the same places, exchanging, you know, reverence for what we were all doing in a 10 block radius. And then at some point, everybody went off into the world and became, you know, worldwide touring bands. And everybody lost that connection. It, it, to me, that's that's the most extraordinary thing. There was this bar that I used to hang out on Avenue A. You know, I started hanging out there when I was like 14 or 15 years old. And I hung out there with the Beastie Boys and the Bad Brains and, you know, the guys that ended up being in my band and, you know, Richie Stotts and, you know, Phil from Motorhead used to hang out in a bar down the block. And, and all of us ended up doing something. You know, it wasn't like we were spread out over the whole city. We all somehow 
gravitated to this one place like it was a magnetic center or something. I have no idea, but it's, you know, I, 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 I often think back at how bizarre and extraordinary and how lucky we were. And I knew it then. You know, I knew, I knew Pete was going to be a rock star, Pete Steele. I thought it would never happen, but I believed it anyway. Because I would go to see him, and I and seeing him play at CBGBs in front of five people had the same effect on me that I that I had when I went to Madison Square Garden and saw Rush sold out. But I didn't really believe it was going to happen. I didn't look. I didn't know any of those people were going to be famous. I certainly didn't think the Beastie Boys were going to be famous. Yeah, I mean, especially the scope and size. The Beastie Boys are like. As much a part of American culture as, you know, the A-team. <laughs> it's, 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 we we kind of take for granted how big of the impact they have. Like, it goes so far beyond the rock into the hip. It's it's a cultural thing. I, I yeah. love that you put respect on Jimmy uh, G's name. Um, I'm trying to have him on the show. He's like a, he's like a feral cat. Every once in a while, I'm like, all right, I'll do it. And then we switch times, but... Siv and so many people have said, if you were there and saw Murphy's Law at that time, you saw one of the greatest frontmen in punk rock. And there's no doubt, Jimmy, Jimmy, on stage in that era was like a movie star. He, he you know, there was 500 people in the room, and the only person you saw was Jimmy. I mean, even even though he was standing on stage with like the most extraordinary band, you know, Petey and Uncle Al and Russell, they made that first album. It, it is just fucking extraordinary. But the star power that Jimmy had at that time, it was it was fantastic. I had more fun at a hundred Murphy's Law shows than I've had at any concerts in my life, except for maybe Kiss. They were just so extraordinarily fun, and and, and Jimmy was so. Such a powerful, fun uh, force. It's, it's just hard to explain how contagious the fun was when Jimmy was on stage. No, that's a view that's been shared so many times. I love hearing it. Uh, I was at the Thompson Square Park show, and it was the first time in my life that I've seen him in front of actual thousands of people. You know, we've seen him in some big rock clubs opening, but the first time I've seen him in multiple thousands of people that were all fixated on him and there was that glimmer and i remember Sib saying basically like this is what i was talking about you know this is this is this is what i meant you know like give him the people that are actually paying attention and in and it was something special so i'm glad you and you brought him up twice that's why the reason i brought into it so lloyd green once the the pedal steel player once said to me he goes some people the light the light just does not shine on them no matter how great they are and that same feeling that I had, like I always thought Pete Steele would have been a rock star, but I really didn't think it was going to ha ever happen. I didn't know. If, I didn't know it was possible. There's, but he did go off and sell platinum records and sell out Nassau Coliseum and all that kind of stuff. In retrospect, the fact that it didn't happen for Murphy's Law is baffling. You know, they they had every opportunity. They went out on tour. With Murphy, uh, with uh, the Beastie Boys, and if if that wasn't a ready-made audience for uh, Murphy's Law, I don't I don't know what was. But there doesn't there just no rhyme or reason 
for why this stuff happens. And, it, and it's not for lack of talent. It's not for lack of charisma. It, it's not for lack of chemistry. That band had it all. It just didn't happen. And who knows? It happened for typo negative, and you know, but it didn't happen for Carnivore. Who, you know, there's, you know, and th there were a million bands playing in New York, and they were all basically on the same level. And then we put out Age of Quarrel, and then we weren't on that level for some reason. You know, all the, you know, all the planets aligned, and we were on the launch pad. Why it was us and not the Crumb Suckers? I can't say. And why it wasn't Murphy's Law, I can't say, but it definitely, you know, especially in retrospect, as I was there and I saw them, I felt that power and that charm and the fun. I mean, it was like exuberant. It was like, like nothing I could even, I couldn't imagine going to see a band now, today and enjoying it as much as I enjoyed Murphy's Law. Just can't imagine it. And I just don't understand why they're not one of the biggest bands in the world. I think of just all the different elements and as a huge part of what we're going to get into when we talk to Jimmy, it's fucked up some of the bands that are from hardcore that got to whatever you want to call the next level or threshold and the ones that didn't. And there's just so many people, I imagine, um, you know, like uh, in you'll hear you'll hear different guys say like, you know, this guy was a crazy maniac, you know, um, like they say that Jay from Crackdown was one of the hardest moshers. And like you hear all these stories that they, they stay in that time. And um, I, I feel like in my, in my time now, I say the same things when we're walking on South street in Philadelphia. And I'm like, you know, on a Thursday night, which is nothing, I could give out 200 flyers in 10 minutes, sitting at the corner of fifth and South eating a slice of pizza in my hand. I didn't need the internet. I could walk down to South street on a Friday or a Saturday. There's no shows link up with a hundred different people, punk skins, different people. And that's how I got to meet so many people because we had this shopping district that was like for the punks and people. And now when you walk down it, it's, it's not unlike the, the same strip or CBs where it's lifeless. It's not the same. There's not that vibrant people. There's not that crowd, but you yeah. know, you have that glimmer where you can look back and go, Oh yeah, that record store was here. This was here. We all hung out here and this guy, Oh, he died. But, you know, you should have seen it. It's, it's, a, it's a huge part of being a city kid, whether it's uh, skate parks or hanging on the street or out, outside of a hardcore show. And I think it's a great thing that you added it. And I wonder if um, when you do the video for Ghost of New York, if you are, do you like, do you ever storyboard ideas? Like you, like, as you're thinking, do you say like, or is it all off the top of the head? Like, do you think if you're going to do something like that for a video, if you'll try to encompass some elements from the old or if you'll just make it as you go along. Well, I mean, I think city kids was my stab at that ghost of New York thing just for the feeling. I, I don't think I'll be, I, I did at one time. Um, there's this New York artist who does this like Banksy type stuff where he does collages and puts them on walls. And uh, one day I was walking down the street and he, there was this, you know, the facade of CBGB's was on the side of this building. And uh, Adam Yalk was there in his trench coat at age 15. And Ray Bees was there. And one other person. And I was like, wow, this is fantastic. I, I love this. This is so great. This would be like a great background for a, a shot. Like if you, if you did the shot from far away and this wall art was in the background just out of focus, 
you're, it would play a trick on the mind to actually think that, you know, it was shot in front of CBGBs type thing. And then I subsequently became friendly with the artist on Instagram. And uh, I, I definitely at some point was formulating a plan, like I told you, you know, you just put these ideas in your pocket for the future. But I wanted to get him to do a series of these, you know, wall arts and somehow use them in a music video. So, and that would be a, a powerful way to do the ghost uh, concept. But uh, I think I'm, I'm already on to the next thing. What is the next thing for the agros? The next song is going to be called Skateboard Fight. At least that's the working title I have now. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a four-minute straight-ahead Paris Mayhew rocker. It's it's less experimental and more uh, concise, but I, I don't know what the video is going to be. I, I had planned to shoot it on Halloween, but Halloween with people wearing you know these masks uh, kind of foiled my my idea. So I'll have to come up with something else. Yeah, it was weird walking around this year. <laughs> it was weird. It was not. It just it had a different vibe. Um, yeah, one more thing I was thinking about when you were talking about South Street, it was, you know, the same thing in New York. It was it was amazing that, you know, the way the scene worked was, you know, people think of it like, oh, there's a hardcore show and everybody goes to the show and they're together at the show and everybody goes home. It wasn't like that in New York. Wherever everybody was, they were all together. And then there was a show and everybody went together to the show. And when the show was over, they went somewhere else together. Absolutely. You know, the scene was the people, not the venue. That's why I was never, I never really understood this reverence for, for clubs so much. Like, oh, CBGBs, you know, like blah, blah, blah. CBGBs was, was irrelevant a decade before it closed. The thing that made it relevant was this uh, migration of people, you know, and, the, and what they did there. That, and, and, and the fact that I witnessed Everything that happened there also happened on the street corner or at a loft or, you know, in a park. Uh, I guess that's why I never felt the relevance of the, those venues because the scene wasn't the venues. The scene was the people that went there and they were always together, whether it was at the venues or not. So when you were talking about South Street, you know, that, of course, that was us, the Lower East Side. You know, people would come from all over the country. And they would get off this, they would, you know, come to New York, they'd get off the subway at St. Mark's, they'd walk down St. Mark's to Tompkins Square Park because they knew that there would be people there. There would be a bunch of hardcore people there that they could just walk up to and they would be instant friends. And they would tell you a place that you could sleep, whether it be a squat or somebody's house or where you could eat and get free food. And people knew... From, you know, from word of mouth, it was like, you know, the zombies in the Dawn of the Dead, you know, they kept going back to the mall. They don't know why, you know, they just were drawn to that place. This was that epicenter where you, people would just go to Tompkins Square Park and they would have a new life. And literally, literally, you would meet a whole people, a bunch of people that would be your family. And some, and most people never left. That was what was most interesting on the New York Hardcore book that you actually had some quotes in is that I was unfamiliar with the fact that there was other spaces besides Max's and um, A7 
you brought up Loft, and I and I read a whole section about how one of the bands, Mad, had a Loft, and bands would come play, and people would stay. And it, it's a cool thing because in Philadelphia, in different sections of the city, different time periods, Lofts and illegal spaces uh, were a huge part of hardcore punk, and still to some degree are now, especially in the pandemic. So it was cool to see that element being talked about because, like you said, the overpowering image in New York hardcore seems to be fixated on, you know, the early stages, Max's Kansas City, then this ship to CBs, some talk of A7. Later you would hear about the Big Rich shows, and that's where, you know, that's the the very quick zoomed-out version of New York hardcore. But if you get deep, it sounded like there was some insane wild shit where, like, bands would show up from all over. People lived from, like, stories about people coming from Japan and district people that would just show up and they would live in New York in that area. And there would just be loft parties and loft shows or shows would just happen because such and such wanted to play a show. And uh, I, I, I wonder how much just gets lost in the annals of everybody giving respect to CBs and not talking about that. You know, you know, people need something to focus on. They need these icons of, you know, touchstones. And I guess that's why, I mean, I don't want to diminish CBG because I loved it. It was fantastic. But I also recognize the time period when we kind of, where it, it abandoned us. You know, there were no more hardcore shows. And then suddenly the room became meaningless and then stayed open for another, at least another decade. So, you know, when you, when you witness that kind of thing, it, it takes away the, that kind of value. So I don't have that nostalgia that I have for, for the room. I have nostalgia for the memories of what happened in that room, like skateboarding from my mom's apartment, you know, 80 blocks down to CBGB's during the day, watching the crumb suckers record their demos, you know, hung over and, and sleeping on a bench and waking up and sleeping on a bench and waking up. And, and again, that's just one of those fantastic things. Those guys were my friends. One of the greatest bands there ever were were just my pals and I was able to go watch them record. And then that night I might have seen Gnostic Front or Bad Brains. It just came, you know, thinking about it now, I can't even believe it. It's fantastic. It seems like the, another thing that's a constant is that everybody in New York, when Bad Brains moved up from DC, knew they were knew that Bad Brains was something special. But I wonder yeah. I've always wondered and I've never had enough thought to ask as we're talking about it but you would be a good one to ask this question i'll probably ask a couple people do you think without new york bad brains doesn't get that huge burst because they kind of show up from dc and there's so much that happens from new york after that that i feel like new york really became the amplifying point like there's so i mean obviously ian and all the guys in dc i'll talk about bad brains but New York still, whether you're talking to Ralphie G, John, everybody will say over and over, you know, bad brains, bad brains, like what they did, what they did, you know, like it ignited an entire thing. I think there had to be some symbiotic relationship between bad brains coming to New York, the burst of energy that created with New York hardcore already in the beginning stages. What's your thoughts on that? That's an interesting point. I, I never, I, I hadn't thought about it, but... You know, in those early days when the Bad Rains first came to New York, there was a lot of racial bias against them, especially in the hardcore scene 
because you know, people, I guess people think they thought they knew what hardcore or punk rock was supposed to look like, and clearly those guys didn't look like it. And then, of course, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but they were black, and that was a big deal to a lot of people. So I don't. If, if there wasn't a New York for them to go to, I mean, I guess they could have gone to Los Angeles, but I don't really know what it was like there. They needed a place with where there were people who weren't holding that against them, I would imagine. Uh, even in New York, a lot of people held that against them. I, I remember hearing kids on the street corner talking about who their favorite band was. You know, like, and someone was like, oh, I love the Bad Rings. And like, like all these like skinheads would be like, fuck them, agnostic front, you know, fuck them. You know, fuck the bad brains. Uh, and, you know, witnessing this kind of thing, for me, was was strange. You know, I you know I grew up in New York. I'm a cosmopolitan person. I had cosmopolitan parents, you know, even in the, the culture of, of the world at the time, you know. My parents uh, raised me right, and I, I didn't have that feeling. But uh, I, I was certainly accustomed to it. I, I, I knew it was normal. I didn't stand on street corners arguing with almost everybody I knew being racist. And that was definitely a, you just kind of just like let it go. You know, you just didn't really believe that they were feeling that way, especially when it came to music. And I, I, I saw the bad Marines facing a lot of obstacles in New York, even as great and powerful and accepted as they were, there was a huge faction that, that, uh, it denied them. But I would imagine after leaving DC, I'm, I'm sure it was tougher than in DC, much tougher than it was in New York. If there wasn't a New York to go to, to elevate the Bad Rings, you know, perhaps they would be another one of those bands that the light didn't shine on. But thank God they did, because they were, they were, they were, you know, there was a period of time where they were just wonderful great band but there, you know there was a bunch of bands in new york at that time it wasn't like the bad brains came to new york and made the new york scene absolutely but, they kind of showed up and there were shows was there was bands. i mean i saw the bad brains and the simulators together the first time and i much preferred the, the simulators initially because they were what i expected you know I, I wanted the sex pistols and the simulators were kind of the New York's answer to the Sex Pistols. They were almost, you know, a, a Sex Pistols mimic visually. Um, you know, they, they were trying to find themselves. Maybe if they had stayed together a lot longer, that would have changed. But but seeing those two bands over and over and over, then then the, the stimulators kind of just drifted off and broke up, and the, and the Bad Brains just became much more relevant as time went on. And and they played. I think they played more of a role of developing future bands in New York. You know, I think a, a lot of bands followed the Bad Brains lead. Absolutely. But to think about it, you know, it was just like a day-to-day -day life at the time. I, you know, I saw the Bad Brains so many times, saw Murphy's Law so many times. And the effect that the Bad Brains had on me and the effect that Murphy's Law had on me, there was like a, a meter, you know. Like, I went, to saw the, I went and saw the Bad Brains and, oh, and then I went and saw the Murphy's Law the next night. And, oh, it was like at the same place. The meter was at the same place but for different reasons, completely different reasons. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I just feel lucky to have seen all those bands so many times.
No, and I, I just really appreciate you taking some time with that because I think whenever people look at hardcore and they look at the Cro-Mags, it's always been John and Harley's voice talking about the LES and that times. And I, and I love your perspective and I'm, I'm glad we got to go back to it, but I don't want to over, I don't want to overlook what we talked about with the city kids video and the future of agros. And it sounds like you're also now working on a book and a movie. So what do you think are the directions that you're taking yourself after, besides the toilet boys performance going forward in the next couple months to a year? I'm going to start assembling a band to play live. Sooner the better, as soon as possible. I, I mean, I really hesitated doing it for a long time because I saw that, that there was, I saw so many tours being booked and canceled, booked and canceled, booked and canceled. Uh, even up until recently, you know, even a couple of months ago, big tours in Europe were just, you know, scrapped. I, I thought it was being ambitious that they were even booking these tours, but I guess I guess they have to go through the motions with the hope that they'll actually happen. And they'll keep doing that until one day it actually happens. So I didn't really see any point in assembling people, getting them worked up, and then not follow through. So I, I, I so I haven't assembled the band, but I think it's time. With the release of the second song, it feels like, you know, the aggros is, you know, when I put out one song, it felt like, okay, this is the splash. This is the way of like putting up my flag. But the second song is when it's time to, uh, to start performing live. I just wish the second song had happened, you know, eight months ago. Do you see yourself waiting on a release to perform or are you looking as a performance to kind of bolster what could come as far as a release would go? Um, I'm definitely not going to wait. You know, now that the video is done and I'm about to start this TV show, I'm just about to start evil in the middle of the month. I have this like little gap of time to get some, some, I have some missions and one of the missions is to get the vinyl EP uh, arranged. And the, the thing about the vinyl is, you know, so many of the plants shut down and then, you know, underground music ended up resurrecting the vinyl industry. And as with anything where money is being made, if money is being made, the corporations step in and then suddenly all the major labels want to put out vinyl to answer the demand of all the underground artists who had success. So what happens is the major labels contact the vinyl pressing plants and they say, put all these small bands on hold. We'll give you 10 albums in a row, you know, and, and you'll make a lot of money on us. So all of a sudden the major labels are the priorities at these small pressing plants. So if, if literally the waiting list to get vinyl pressed is seven months. So I'm going to get that. And, and the key is also getting onto a, a line, getting onto a queue. It's not like you make the order and you deliver them all the deliverables, like the recordings and the artwork and everything right away. When you book it, you basically just get online. And then like five months from now, they say, okay, give us all the stuff you need. And then they'll, they'll press your vinyl. At least that's what I've uh, ascertained. So in the next two weeks, I'm going to get myself on that queue. So it might be five, six, seven months until the vinyl is actually pressed. So I'm certainly not waiting for anything. You know, again, I'm not in the music industry. This is I'm a self-release. Is that why you're doing it this way? Oh yeah. I, I, 
I don't, I don't even understand what record labels do uh, for somebody like me. You know, nowadays, I understand. Nowadays, they'd sell 17 T-shirts the minute you you would announce the announcement. Here's 17 agro T-shirts. Uh, we've got a record. If you pre-order it now, you'll get it in nine months. And um, they try to monetize immediately without value to the customer. And then somehow you end up with a bill. <laughs> it seems like it seems like that's the major way things are released, you know? What can a label offer me? A label is just a bank who loans you money to make a record and pays, to make, interest on it. <laughs> pays to make a video. So I already have the recording. I make my own videos. They don't press, you know, I can order my own vinyl and I can hire my own PR people. So, you know, I, I really, the only, the only advantage to being on a label is this mechanism of the industry. Like even with the press, I, I mentioned this last time is you, somebody from the press contacts you and they say, we want to do an article on the agros. When's the album coming? And I go, well, there's not going to be an album. They're like, what do you mean? They can't, they can't adapt to your method. They only know how to do it the way they've always done. Yeah, it's formulaic. They're incapable. The corporate structure and that I, I fucking loathe the industry word because an industry to me is a machine, like assembly line. And you would assembly a line. I actually worked at a factory as a kid for a very short amount of time. They build a machine. They put a huge space in this building to make a lot of the exact same items for distribution. And that's the music industry. Even when you have these bands that are punk or hardcore, the machine called the industry is immovable. They cannot fluctuate. They cannot pivot. They cannot do anything that isn't already told for them. And it's like, it's as, it's as, uh, it's as, it's as laughable as that joke about family guy only being able to tell jokes that the Simpsons already did. No music industry person or publicist with the small exceptions of very small people that you've done a lot of business with lately, like the metal injections, the no echoes, these type, because we're smaller industry, I hate the word industry. Like we're smaller people so we can, we can move easier. Yeah. Like you're, it's so fucking hard. And for so many people to not understand that, like there's not more freedom in a large industry because they have a formula, they have a purpose. Oh, you want a record? Well, you have to wait two years because we have all these promised records. You know, like it's it's so cool to hear that you're saying at this stage in your career that you understand, especially now with the internet and the different like information that I felt was gatekeeped by so many people that you have all the, I mean, especially with, you know, going far back as your father, you have all the prerequisites to release your own music and publish it and to promote it better than a, a bigger or even a mid-sized label could do. So I just love hearing that you're saying that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's because I, I don't want to have to sacrifice, give up, give up my rights just because I can't get past some of these obstacles that are presented by the mainstream press or, you know, or any, actually any press except for folks like you. That's why I so appreciate you sharing your audience with me again. And without an album out, without asking me those kinds of questions, it was literally, you know, I sent you a text. I said, I'm about to put out a new song. I, I would like to have another talk with you. And you said, fuck yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's all it needs to be, man. You know, um, 
And, I, and as, long, as long as there are people like you, I will, you know, that will share their their audience with me. I will uh, I will expose my music to them, and and I'll keep doing, and I'll put it out in every way possible. I'll play gigs, and I'll sell those vinyls one at a time, and uh, I'll shake hands with people who want it. And uh, you know, I think that is that'll be a much better way for me to do what I'm doing. No, I think I think that you're doing this from the obviously not just a learned experience, but but the, the right way to build an organic thing, and I think organic reach is so overlooked in the in the in the process of the machination of the industry let's build let's make something if it doesn't have any organic growth it doesn't have any body to it and the people will walk away but i feel like the vibe from the last release and then now this newest one which came out yesterday i mean it's it's fantastic and that's what you need you need something like that to really build the foundation on and so you know, not only for your your time in Chromags, but just I, I the response from your release when we did the episode episode thirty, which is crazy that we're almost thirty episodes later, is that people always wanted to hear your perspective. Um, even John was very thankful to hear you say. This is he said. This is what I've been saying. I've been saying, <laughs> like it's a funny thing, but so many people just wanted to hear your voice and your perspective is a unique one, and just tying in with the city kids and, and the chaos magic. This is music from a different angle, you know. This isn't Paris trying to get a bunch of young kids together and dress up and do Chromax too. This isn't Paris trying to say fuck you hardcore i'm gonna have all this weird music like it's such a unique idea and and the visuals tie in so greatly to it i mean i i I, you know i got lucky that i grew up in the age of when the video did kill the radio star and some of my favorite records some of my favorite metal songs are tied into the first time i seen the video and so in a digital world of spotify and the band camps for the young DIY bands, the visuals have been really lacking. I mean, even album art kind of sucks ass these days. Yeah. And so we're back to, uh, did you see the, I mean, and, and, uh, the hardcore videos are really ass. Thank God there's Hate Five Six because he just does the, the, you see the live presentation. So seeing a video, there's so many things to pick out, you know, like, and, and that's me coming from a, a headbangers ball perspective. So I, I love the city kids. Now I'm going to go back and look for this go-go dancer. I'm going to like, I love watching a video several hundred times. Like you mentioned biohazard and typo negative. Like, you know, these are bands I saw small into their career, but to see their videos hundreds of times in my friend's house, waiting between shows, like it, it, the connection between music and when it's really cultured, like a really good music video it'll stand out forever, you know, and that music video long after you probably, ah, I haven't listened to this band in a while. That video pops up like God bless YouTube. We're having in a huge history. I, I put that as a wormhole. Sometimes just put a music video and next thing it goes to the next one, next one. I think it's a great way to release the stuff. And I, I just appreciate your take on this and um, we'll get ready to wrap this up, but I want you to tell us what you want us to look for in knowing when the aggros are going to play their first shows 
And I'll obviously direct everybody on our social medias to your websites. But I just appreciate your time. You've been always earnest. You've been honest to the fault of giving away that ego. Like you you came here with no ego again and you spoke from the heart. And I think that's why people really enjoyed the last episode. And I was really happy to have you back on this one. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to be a part of, the, of your show. I, if there's one thing I could um, impress upon your audience is, uh, you know, we are different. We are, we are conducting ourselves in a different way. And, and if, and if you do appreciate the music and you want to support it, uh, you don't have to pay for anything. You don't have to buy anything. You can just subscribe. Subscribe to the YouTube page. Go watch the video for free and subscribe. Because when uh, when my band is assembled and promoters all over the world are trying to decide whether they're going to book me, they're going to look and see how many subscribers I have and how many followers on Instagram. And I know that sounds you know, silly, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm just, you know, not savvy enough to recognize that everybody knows this, but uh, it's just a click. You can subscribe and promoters will say, holy shit, look at all the subscribers Paris has. I think I'll book him. Now, metrics, all I ask. Metrics, metrics are the new medium. And um, it's amazing to see someone who came into music off a skateboard in the Lower East Side and go through and for those who didn't hear this first episode episode 30 it's a must like this is the blueprints of how you go through and create a career in music and create a career in shooting videos it's, it's fantastic and to see you have all this behind you and still learning the the world of social media and youtube now delving into the non-fungible to tokens like these are the things that just show that you're never you're never stuck in, you know. How come we don't got eight tracks anymore? Like, no, you're constantly moving forward, new ideas, still centered around the principles and tenets and aesthetics of the past, but they're new ideas, and it's it's it shows your creative end in all elements. So I appreciate you asking us. Um, we're gonna have all the links up in Paris. Thank your wife again for you know all the things she does for you, and thank you for giving us your time and your energy. And I look forward to hopefully doing one of the first aggro shows when you're ready. Absolutely. I want that. That'd be awesome, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks again to Paris Mayhu. All the links for City Kids and Paris and the aggros are all available on our website, which is tihcpodcast.com. If you want to support us, support us through Philly hcshows.com the calendar is full tons of shit going on so much coming in the end of 2021 plenty of 2022 do not forget to go to keystone hardcore jam it's saturday december 11th at club reverb in reading pennsylvania brought to you by the trinity presents support the shit you today Eton concrete killing time all out war death threat these are all bands i hadn't played yet you know step it the fuck up pennsylvania or travel here motherfucker if you're from the fucking Shitty ass lands like New York and whatever. Hello, I'm playing around lovely people from New York. It's been a good episode. I had a really good time talking to Paris. So many more episodes coming from California. Then we shift back home. It's going to be a great year for this hardcore podcast. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for 
every little note, every little detail, or just like comments made about the about the podcast. It means the world to me. It means people are listening, and I appreciate you. So until next time, TIHCpodcast.com. This is Hardcore Fest on Instagram, TIHCfest on Twitter, The Joe Hardcore on Instagram, and Philly HC Shows Instagram and Twitter. Thank you. Goodbye.